Hello and welcome into the Feels Like 45 podcast. I'm Cade Webb, and as always, I am joined by Dustin Ragusa. Dustin, are you looking forward to another trip to Arlington? Kate, I am if it ends in a different way than it did last time against Baylor. But I'm I'm personally, I wanted you to know, I'm finally warm again after last Saturday's game, going to it in person. But how are you doing? Uh, I'm doing great. I First off, thank you for your service. I Being there at that game <laughs> was really bold of you. I had every intention to go. And our Thanksgiving travel without, you know, giving any details was was pretty brutal. And uh, we got back and I didn't I didn't feel up to standing in that weather uh, after what I had been experiencing over the last four days uh, <laughs> of my Thanksgiving travel. So, Dustin, I just wanted to thank you on behalf of the Feels Like 45 podcast and its listeners. Thank you for being there because uh, I'm sure it was it was bitter. It was uh, so after halftime or at halftime, I went with a good friend of mine. Shout out to Emilio. He's also, we've talked about it on here. Also my brother-in-law. That's a totally <laughs> different story. But, Wild how that works, isn't it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> but uh, at halftime, we're sitting, we went to grab some food and we're sitting kind of underneath, you know, in the little walkway area. And we were both like, if BYU scores on the, their opening drive, Let's just bounce. We're yep. soaking wet. We're freezing cold. They didn't. And then OSU came down and scored. And we were like, we're staying till the end, no matter what happens now. That that sentence was good luck. And then it ended up going to overtime, which I didn't love that. But the victory <laughs> made it all better. Yeah, I can't imagine this the the thought running through your mind at that point where it's like, oh, this is going to overtime. Oh, this is going to double <laughs> overtime. When does this actually end? And when do I get some reprieve from this? I yeah, I can't imagine. But the the scenes from inside the stadium had family there, friends there. It seemed like it was quite the memorable one. I I, I don't think anybody that was there is going to forget that experience because what a game. I mean, uh, we'll get into all of that, but with everything on the line, the way things started, the way that second half, as you mentioned, Dustin, flipped the entire game. I mean, the opening drive, opening two drives of that game in the second half flipped the entire game on its head. And it felt like at that point when it was 24 to 13, I felt like Oklahoma State had a clear shot at that game, the way things transpired. And I told you this off air, and I think you agree. Tale of two halves doesn't even begin to describe the way it looked in the first half as BYU empties out the bag of tricks. You know, they, they try the onside kick. It doesn't work out, barely. They fake a punt. They hit on a maybe the longest pass of their season. I don't I haven't actually checked that. I thought the broadcast said that. But 
everything went their way. And then you go to the second half and everything goes Oklahoma State's way. It just felt totally different. So, you know, Dustin, them getting that win in overtime and double overtime uh, had to be had to be quite the satisfying experience. Oh, yeah, it, it really was. And and I wanted to let the listeners, Kate, and you know that I was in Baton Rouge for Thanksgiving and my uncle was trying to get me with a free ticket to stay for the LSU-Texas A&M game. Said no. I flew back that morning and went to the Oklahoma State game. So thank just you. just wanted everyone to know. I'm not, I don't want any flowers or anything. I just wanted you guys to know that. But, Kate, back to what you were saying about the game. The tale of two halves, and then if you're someone who didn't watch the game and you see the final score, Oklahoma State 40, BYU 34 after two overtime periods, but look at the stat game comparison in the box score, you're probably baffled because Oklahoma State dominated in almost every single stat. I mean, 503 total yards to 327, 28 first downs to 14, almost 10 minutes more time of possession almost 20 more plays run for Oklahoma state better on third downs. It's, you know, Ollie Gordon with 166 and five TDs. It's just a, it was a fascinating game to go back and to watch live and to go back and rewatch because it didn't really make any sense at times. And a lot of that was due to BYU playing so aggressive and like their life depended on it and Oklahoma state feeling a little tight. I think at times. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, the way you just ended that comment is the way I felt watching the game. It felt like Oklahoma State, Alan Bowman's play in the first half, I think indicated some of this, that that was a tight football team. And you had a team in BYU that had literally nothing to you to lose. And there is like some comparison going into the Big 12 title game. There is something to draw from that alone where Texas is in kind of the Oklahoma State spot in 2021 where it's win and you not only win the Big 12 but you're in the playoff more than likely but that comes with a lot of pressure TCU didn't rise to that occasion last year and so Dustin I I think that's a great way for us to set the table for this episode by reminding you that it is brought to you by our friends at Charlie Hustle Clothing Company. Charlie Hustle is a vintage-inspired clothing company based out of Kansas City that specializes in collegiate and hometown apparel. Charlie Hustle wants you to be the best-dressed fan this season, so be sure to check out their wide selection of officially licensed collegiate apparel today and show off your school spirit all season long. With over 30 schools to choose from, they've got you covered with all of your collegiate apparel needs. Shop today at www.charliehustle.com, and when you do, use our promo code 101215 for 15% off all non-sale items. Charlie Hustle, vintage, made, fresh. Dustin, I'll give it to you. All right, Cade. So before we get into the scheme, a couple quick stats. Because since this wasn't the 45 to 3 UCF beatdown, I'll do my little lead in stats. Oklahoma State was trailing 24 to 6 at halftime, and they overcame that 18 point deficit to claim a double overtime win. We talked about it 40 to 34. Oklahoma State overcame deficits of 14 points or more in consecutive games for the first time in school history, Cade. That was a good stat. I loved that one when I saw it. The win over BYU marked OSU's largest home comeback victory and third largest comeback win in program history. The Cowboys erased a 21-point deficit to beat Notre Dame in 
uh, the 2022 Fiesta Bowl and a 20 to zero deficit to win at Colorado on November 10th, 1979. Those are the other two mentioned in the three largest comeback victories. With the win, Oklahoma State became the lone Big 12 team and ninth Power 5 conference program to make more than one league championship game over the last four seasons. The list includes Alabama, Georgia, Clemson, <laughs> Michigan, Oregon, Oklahoma State, Utah, USC, and Iowa. Pretty good names yeah, to be. Yeah, good company right there. And then, Cade, my last one, Oklahoma State has won more conference games than any other team in the Big 12 since 2020. <laughs> yeah, I think for me, the but idea hey, you yeah. better you better be on the fire Mike Gundy train after the <laughs> the next time something goes wrong. I'm coming after you. It's pretty good. Did you see the uh, Twitter uh, kind of firestorm today that Oklahoma State, by some formula, was the luckiest team in football? Yes. Which that so I I've seen that stat come up in prior years, and like I I think a lot of it has to do with some of the come back in like close wins. I know that's always like where the right the ESPN indicator kind of flows like right. that. It there's still wins though. Well, and isn't there an old saying that luck is when preparation meets opportunity? It's like I think and here's the thing for me, not to derail us totally, four of the top 6 luckiest teams in college football are playing for a conference championship this weekend. So, yeah, as you look at Oklahoma State, I said this a few weeks ago that it seems like they broke the analytics this year with their loss to South Alabama, their shuffling of the quarterbacks in their first three games of the season. Those things impact analytics at the end of the year. And so when you look at this 4.8 number, it's like that doesn't make any sense. And to your point, Dustin, the comebacks have something to do with it. But where I was going with that is <laughs> all of what you just mentioned is like, yeah, Oklahoma State may have gotten some bounces go their, to go their way, but I don't look at this season thinking they were lucky. I look at this thinking the rest of the conference is lucky they lost to Iowa State or they wouldn't have had much to talk about over the last month and a half. Yeah, I have a similar viewpoint as Gundy after the in the postgame presser when he said we sure make it hard on ourselves to get right where there. we want to go. Yep. It's all, it's almost like Oklahoma state put themselves in these positions with like what you're talking Absolutely. about, the shuffling and they had the mass exodus in the transfer portal, trying to get everything running through the, you know, quote unquote preseason. Even if they don't shuffle the quarterbacks around, shuffle the running backs around, you're still talking about so many new guys. You're probably having a little bit of growing pains through those three games, no matter what, as we saw it take Alan Bowman and Ollie Gordon, even the Iowa State game to kind of get clicking and going. So I completely agree with you, though. I, I love it, though. I love that. I love all stats. So I love that that is pointed out in general. But something that I wanted to throw back at you kind of in that same vein before we get into the offensive scheme, this is more like big picture. If any other season, you and I are coming on this podcast and bragging about our win-loss prediction being correct. But it's so weird. You can't do it on this one because of South Alabama and Iowa State and because of how the season felt early. Like, we projected 9-3. and three. Yeah. And it, that's how it ended up. But I don't want to give myself any flowers for that because of how chaos it was. It, 
that's the lucky stat. I just we just got lucky in that front, I think. So I have seen another example of this in Josh Pate 24-7 does a great job. Probably my one of my favorite voices in college football right now. But he picked at the beginning of the year Texas and Oklahoma State in the Big 12 title. He also rescinded his prediction in week four after Oklahoma State lost to Iowa State. And then what happens? It comes correct. So what you and I are going to do is different than that. You are correct. I am not claiming victory in that uh, I was correct at nine and lucky. three. I, I think we were lucky. I absolutely think we got lucky in that. Yeah, that's uh, now if I, if I ever get a score prediction right, I'm obviously going to brag about that. But yeah, I, I just wanted to point it out because it's hilarious because not that you and I are big brag guys, but we would definitely do it in a joking manner in any oh, other and- season. And, and we would definitely brag. Let's yes. let's not yes. mince words. We would brag. <laughs> we would flex. You know, we yes. would definitely flex a little bit. But I've been flexing right. since we got on here. Yeah. Kind of leading into the offensive scheme. I did want to hit two notes from Kalani Sataki. We talked about on the preview, BYU's head coach. We we said we both liked him a lot. He I love that he came out there, and one of the first things he says, Cade is something that I thought in the game, and we've kind of already alluded to with the fake punt and talking about things of that nature. He said, we threw the playbook at him. We talked yeah. about that on the preview. BYU was going, anything that they still had left in the tank, they were going to use at Oklahoma state. Just, just like, I think Oklahoma state should do that this week against Texas. <laughs> anything yeah. that Nardo's hiding. I, I think, you know, Casey Dunn's been there for a while. I'm not sure if there, he could come up with some new stuff. I don't think there's anything he hasn't shown, but Nardo, we've heard all the talk about hiding things in the playbook, things like that. That's kind of why I wanted to talk about it, so we can hit it again when we talk about the Texas preview. But I love that Sataki said that, and I also love that Sataki said the environment was awesome. He said even through the rain, the fans had energy the whole time, and he like really credited Stillwater, Boone Pickens Stadium, and the fans. And I thought that was really awesome, especially after a loss that made you not bowl eligible. Yeah, he's a class act. I I think that he's going to end up being, whether he's a lifer at BYU or ends up getting a, a, a better job, BYU's a good job. That's a big brand. I just, I feel like he's he's got it figured out. He's very complimentary of the other team. He's also very transparent in his press conferences and you're exactly right. I mean, it doesn't take much. If you just flipped on the game, you would have seen that BYU threw the book at Oklahoma State, as you would have expected. And between the onside kick, the fake punt, some of the plays they ran, yeah, they they did everything they could to try to win that game, and they did it early. And that's what gave me some confidence going into that second half was like, okay, what else could they possibly have that Oklahoma State has not seen? And we found out was not much. Yeah. All right, well, getting into the offense, five. I already talked about it, 503 yards of total offense. Just kind of general team-wise, we talked about it in the preview. We knew or we thought BYU was going to come out, even though they went heavy three down against OU, which they haven't shown all season, and kind of tried to confuse OU with that defense, kind of their situational defense becoming their base. You and I both thought, as as I think everybody did, that BYU was going to come out, switch around their fronts, load the box, and try to stop the run. And that's exactly what they did. Sataki, after the game, said, we were loading the box and they were making us pay for it with the RPO. And what happened, you know, Coach Gunny talked about, they're fine on the first two drives and it started kind of stalling out. And what they did was kind of started going to, changing up how they were running the RPOs a little bit and hitting those 
and they started working in the second half to be able to kind of get some rhythm and everything like that. Tyler Batty, the defensive end for BYU who caught the fake punt, he said they came out and got the ball out quick in the second half, RPOing. In the first half, though, Cade, if they score touchdowns on the on the first drive and then after the fumble, I think I know it's a what if scenario, but I think it's a completely different game. No question. Because then the rain's kind of starting. You can kind of clock control, manage the game. The defense, as we'll get into later, was not really playing bad at all the entire game outside of a few explosives. So I think it's a completely different game. But I kind of just wanted to hit on what some of these guys said. You know, Casey Dunn said he knew BYU was going to contest everything. And he he actually, after the game, retroactively looking back, said he wishes he would have called more shots downfield, but he was a little reluctant because of the rain. And I know they didn't hit on any of the ones they threw, but Bray got open, Owens got open, LJ3 got open. Yep. I think if they would have kept taking those shots, so say there's no rain, I think, you know, Bowman could have probably attempted, I think he attempted five, ten, and they would have hit on three or four, which would have made it a completely different game as well. You spoke to the the tightness of the team. I felt like the play calling was a little bit tight early on. There were several, uh, you know, run, 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 run sequences where it didn't feel like Oklahoma State was mixing a whole lot in. And it felt like I, the way I viewed that was they were concerned about the weather. I didn't take it as like they're just being overly conservative for any reason and they did take a couple shots downfield but I did feel like they were concerned with the weather when BYU was throwing it deep uh, occasionally so you know I would agree with you I'll say Bowman's got a hit on those on some of those I mean he has thrown a nice deep ball over the course of the season but as we'll get into later that was kind of emblematic of most of his day oh yeah I completely agree one one note I wanted to point out, that was the first points on an opening drive since the Bedlam game. Oh, wow. So they wow. went multiple games. I think two games, yeah, between that without scoring on the opening and didn't drive. They which start they this, kind of doing didn't they start the season like seven straight games scoring on the opening drive or something like that? Yeah, it was some kind of uh, – it was a stat that I had said on the podcast previously. So that was an interesting note to me. They got the field goal. BYU, we talked about them mixing up their fronts. They were also slanting their D-line which I think was catching, they were doing it more than some of the teams Oklahoma State has played recently. So basically what that is, is instead of either, you know, a two gap method, like Oklahoma State does a lot of the time where you're grabbing onto the offensive lineman, kind of reading and reacting based on the running back and then shucking him out of the way and trying to make the play, especially that's what the nose tackles are doing a lot for Oklahoma State. You're picking a gap and kind of slanting through it, either to the left or to the right. It looked like that was confusing Oklahoma State's offensive line a little bit, which is which that is a little confusing to me because they're such a veteran group and they've played together all season now and they've seen that. But Tyler Batty and some of those guys for BYU were playing actually really well. And I was pretty impressed with how they were kind of playing early on in that game against Oklahoma State's offensive line, who's... I'm going to use the word dominated, but it's not so much physically dominated. They just played better than a lot of the defensive lines they face. Yeah, I I would agree with that. On the just kind of overall scheme as well, I thought the B they were doing a lot of cover three, a lot of cover one early, mixing in some a little bit of other zone, but that cover one man and then cover three, they looked the same off the snap. BYU was pressing up 
a lot on Oklahoma State's receivers with their corners and then the bailing or staying in man. That's something we expected them to do. But one thing I didn't expect, and I didn't give these guys any credit in the preview, BYU's cornerbacks had really good eye discipline. Obviously, the interception, but another example, third and two, split zone RPO to Brennan Presley. He's kind of going out on that arrow route. The corner looked to me like he was in man, but sees Brennan leaking out and Alan Bowman starting to throw it and basically just bails on, I think it was Owens, and goes up and makes the tackle. And and stopping Brennan Presley for no gain, I actually was pretty impressed by I, some of the eye discipline from their corners. Not not their overall play. I talked about them getting beat just just a second ago, but that was pretty impressive to me. I thought Eddie Heckard had a really good game. He he was impressive, and I mean, again, they weren't awesome, but they. I thought that they were a bright spot on that BYU defense. Yeah, no, no, I agree. And Oklahoma State mixed up some tempo, huddle, check with me. They were kind of mixing all those things up, but. As far as PFF snap counts go, most snaps for Josiah Johnson all season, I feel like I've said that multiple times, just as the season has gone on, they've just played him more and more and more, and I've loved it. A hundred percent. I thought thought Josiah Johnson, his catch on that third down, he did that against West Virginia in a critical moment. Is he... Is he kind of the go-to guy outside of Brendan Presley in that? And Ollie Gordon, obviously. But, like, Bowman's looking there. Well, I think, Cade, and I could be way off on this because we're through a whole season now, but I still think when teams play Oklahoma State that have played them in the past, and I know BYU is not a good example of that, but other Big 12 teams, they're they're still not really respecting the tight end because it's not something Oklahoma State has utilized in their passing concepts. Whereas, you know, Josiah Johnson's in the snag concept. He's running the arrow sometimes, which will be the first read. He's running the snag. Yeah, deep and they're kind of yeah. mixed. Like he's running similar routes to what the receivers are running in some of these concepts. They're switching them in and out, interchanging the tight end in there. And that's not something they've done in the past. So I agree with you. I think he's been pretty sure-handed, not a lot of drops this season. And I think in big moments, Bowman feels comfortable throwing him the football. I think it's a great yeah, call out by I, you. I, I, I kind of look to him this week as, you know, is, is there a is there a four catch game in the bag for Josiah Johnson? Because it, it may need to be this week if he's got one. Yeah. And along with Josiah, you're seeing some guys get healthy. Blaine Green, that's his most snaps since the KU game. Jaden Bray, most snaps since the West Virginia game. Although when Bray caught the one on the sideline that had the ineligible man downfield yeah. and he he awesome job breaking the tackle. To me, he looked a little slow recovering from that. And it made me feel like he's still not a hundred percent. I thought the exact same thing. I just watched that play before we got on here and thought the exact same thing. It was a great he was slow coming out of that move. break, too. I know he got kind of tripped up, but uh look forward to seeing what he looks like this week. I think if he's 100%, even though Leon Johnson has been playing amazing, I'm going to give him his flowers in a little bit, and I'm also going to you know, talk about some things that I've been critical on him previously that I thought he did well in this game. But if Jaden Bray's 100%, I think he's switching in a little bit more, either with, like you've called out in the past, maybe even playing him at Z with yep. Owens, with Leon, or even having him play the H spot at times instead of playing green just to get that dynamic guy on the field. And the fact that he only played, you know, the 
16 snaps in this game, even though that was his most since West Virginia. And after seeing that play, I just think he's still not 100%. I don't know if you can take LJ3 off the field right now with the way he's playing. I mean, he is uh, week after week after week improving on so many things. And this week, oh, yeah, I he's mean, been killing it. He's, he's, I'll just say, he's been more sure handed than Jaden Bray has shown this year. There's some value to that. I think you obviously lose some of the, the, you know, route running ability, the sheer athleticism, but, I mean, I, I just don't know if you can take LJ3 off the field, which is why I feel like you may have to figure something out with Jaden Bray. Yeah, I, and I I was more kind of insinuating maybe switching him out with Owens a little bit. No, that's, that's what the, I'm saying. In the first half, Owens was having trouble getting separation on some of the shorter routes. And if Bray's 100%, we've seen what he can do on those hitch and on those quick slants. Yep. Now, to your point... He's had some drop issues on those same routes, exactly. but he can pretty much get separation against anybody. And I think they were missing a little bit of that in the first half Agreed. until Owens decided to go just absolutely bonkers in the second half and <laughs> LJ three stayed kind of consistent. Yeah. But last note on the PFF snap counts so close to the first game with all five linemen playing every snap, but Joe Mahalski. Yeah. One of the toughest dudes in the world. The fact that he came right. So that happened on my side of the field, my season ticket side of the field. It looked like he couldn't move his arm at all. I don't, I, I didn't watch like the replay to, of that play to see if they showed that. Cause normally I'm skipping to the next play, but it looked like he couldn't move his arm, arm at all. And Austin Kowiecki comes in for one play and then Mahalski's right back out there. So I did watch the replay live because I, I said this in a, in a group chat. Uh, I shout out to the uh, GoPokes family. I, I thought he separated his shoulder the way it looked live as he kind of pulled his arm out of there. He caught a helmet straight on the elbow. I mean, and I think to your point, caught a stinger and, and literally could not move his arm. I think that is true. It was awesome to see him come back in, but oh, man, I was hoping for the all five guys to play every snap. I know. I've, been, I've been waiting for it. And that was a scary moment in the game. Yeah, it was. And it was later in the game too. I mean, yeah, I guess with multiple overtimes, it wasn't that late, but it was late in the regulation game. Yeah, absolutely. So um, on the personnel motion notes, again, this is something I feel like we've said multiple weeks now. 22 plays is the most run out of 21 personnel this season. The previous high was 15 against OU. So that is a running back, normally Ollie Gordon, a tight end, normally Josiah Johnson, and a fullback, normally Braden Cassidy. They've just, I think they've pretty much gone away. We saw, I think, maybe like one or two snaps of it in this game. I think, no, actually just, yeah, just one snap of the true 30 personnel with Schultz and Cassidy out there diamond or whether it be two H backs or double wing, anything like that, a one inline tight end, one H back. They've kind of gone to where it's Cassidy and Johnson out there and they're keeping Schultz more for special teams and things of that nature. And I personally prefer that. I believe the interception was in the true 30 personnel diamond formation. It, it was. And I thought of you immediately. <laughs> yeah, so it's it just it just takes you only have two wide receivers at that point. Even though I know they threw Cassidy the ball in this game, you kind of see what he's able to do after the catch, which is not really much. And no shot at Cassidy. I, I'm going to talk about his blocking later, which was amazing. 
I just think that you got to go 21 or just 11 with Josiah out there. I just, I don't, I think you're going to have to do some heavy sets against UT, but I still don't think that means go to fullbacks. Yeah. I thought a designed, you know, route for Braden Cassidy kind of at the line of scrimmage was a funky, you know, idea, but that's, yeah, no, know, they ran, they can't they ran all be great. Shallow concept with him running the shallow three plays in a row also, but that was due to going tempo. So I, I get that, but okay. One note, we don't have to stay on it for very long, but I had to shout it out. We'll talk about it later when we talk about Jaden Nixon, but one true, they almost did it twice, but BYU called the timeout. A true 21 personnel set with two running backs as opposed to a fullback and a running back out there with both Nixon and Ollie Gordon on the field. Cade, you've been calling for it all season. I think that's the first time they've done it, or it's the first time they've done it since they went with Bowman as the quarterback because I went back through all my notes of bit of Big Twelve play, and I w- I didn't look closely enough, but I it was so random that it didn't immediately jump out at me because I was doing stuff watching the game wrangling my children. But like, why why now? What was BYU doing to where <laughs> you pull that out of nowhere? And are we gonna? What if they just run twenty one with two running backs like thirty percent of the game against Texas? Hey, I love it. I mean, I think the only thing it does is it takes a blocker off yep. the field when Josiah and Cassidy are both really good blockers. So that's your, you know, me talking about 30 versus the 21 versus this 21. But I, I loved it. I tweeted at you immediately from the Feels Like account. And you see what happens when you show something on a crucial down that you've never shown on film. The other team takes a timeout. So even though they didn't go back to the two back set on that specific play, and I know they ended up not getting the fourth down, but you cause a team to waste the timeout right there. Absolutely. Which is awesome Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, sorry, do you have more no, on the two ahead. back? Go ahead. Okay, go ahead. my bad. On the run pass splits, our buddy Adam Lunt, we were talking to him a little bit about this. He called it out on Twitter. Good, just kind of even mix of run pass on first down, almost exactly 50 50, 51 run, 49 pass on second down, exactly 50 50. And then on third down, it's obviously 65 35, leaning more towards pass. That is how you want it to look. Maybe even a little bit more run on first down, but when teams are loading the box, it's going to be more 50 50. We've seen it, you know, we talked about it earlier this season where it was skewed one way or the other, especially on a first down and they go with the great splits. They rush for 4.7 yards per carry on first down. It's just, that's just how you want to play the game. Those two kind of stats that I just laid out. I thought BYU, the way they brought that extra man into the box was more unique than I think we've been used to seeing this year. Like, they were either bringing the safety all the way up to the line, line of scrimmage or they were dropping a linebacker down there. Like I thought they matched Oklahoma State at the line of scrimmage better than I've seen teams do. And unfortunately, I think that puts some stuff on tape. Texas, they're probably going to do what they've always done. They're good enough up front where they may not have to do that. But I thought BYU's approach to Oklahoma State's heavier sets was really good. Yeah, I, I did too. And they were keeping that single high safety Super deep. So deep which, that you almost forgot about him. Yeah, which we haven't seen. We've seen teams play a lot of single high against OSU, but that the depth that he was 
consistently right. in this game. We haven't seen a lot. And they started kind of mixing it up a little bit in the second half. But at that point, Oklahoma State's offense was rolling. And I think they kind of they threw the counterpunch and knocked BYU back on their heels. And I think BYU's defensive coordinator was scrambling a little bit as that game no, went on. No because doubt. They started trying some things that didn't work. And it was almost like, even though Oklahoma State has found some holes in what you were doing in the first half, you might be better off just staying in that. It it definitely felt like BYU's defense was slamming the oh no button. Like, what, what do we do? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Oklahoma State actually decreased their usage of pre-snap motion in this game from 51% against uh, Houston, which that's excluding the two kneel downs, to 41% against BYU. Cade, I called this out on Twitter. There was a stretch from just under six minutes left in the third quarter to 11 minutes left in the fourth. 18 plays were run, and only two of those had motion. I think a big part of that was they were running uh, some tempo during that. You know, we talked about running the shallow concept three times in a row. They also went... 10 personnel. We talked about Blaine Green playing the 15 snaps. A majority of those 10 personnel snaps came in that stretch and then a little bit before that series as well. And in 10 personnel, Oklahoma State just doesn't go a lot of motion. They're normally going tempo out of that, trying to spread the defense out wide. So, I mean, there there are ways you can use motion to scheme things up there. But the way they were running plays at that point, they were just, kind. I think, trying to spread it out trying to throw the ball. They were still down by a lot. So when you see that decrease, I wouldn't, you know, get all fired up. Like, why are they going away from motion? It was kind of flow of the game. Yeah, it, it seemed like it. And as they kept moving in the second half, it felt like that just burns clock, as you've pointed out previously. So, yeah, exactly. They were trying to go tempo. I talked about this a little bit earlier, but due to be, and I put a clip out of this on Twitter, some examples, due to BYU playing that cover one and cover three, it looks the same a lot of the times. Like cover one has the one deep safety who we were just talking about. And then the two corners and everybody else are like, not just the two corners, everybody else is manned up on a man. Cover three can look exactly like that, except the two corners are bailing. Each of them have a third and the deep single high safety has the deep middle third, which because he was so deep, he doesn't even really have to bail. He might even be coming up a little bit, but Oklahoma State knew this going into the game. And even some of the BYU players after the game, uh, Heckard was talking about the the interception where he jumped it. He was like, they probably thought we were in cover three with me off like that because that's normally what we do. But Oklahoma State was using motion to try to get BYU to tip their hand. A lot of Brennan Presley motion across the formation. If someone's following him, normally tells you they're in man. If no one's following him, they could be switching responsibilities in man, but they're probably, it's probably because they're in cover three and Oklahoma state was able to figure out what coverage BYU was in and make a positive playoff of it more often than not. And I, it's just a little thing that Oklahoma state added to the game plan with that motion to, and they've done it at times this year, but I love seeing it. And I love seeing it work out. Yeah. It was a good chess match in that at least first half, I mean, it didn't work out well for Oklahoma State, but I, I, you could see what they were trying to do, and I do think it laid the the groundwork for what they were able to do in the second half. You had seen, you know, enough looks in cover three or cover one that they were able to, you know, figure out what was if there was anything, if there was a tell or not, 
it seemed like they got much more comfortable. Alan Bowman did in that second half. Yeah, yeah, he did. Now, when we get to Bowman, I want to get back to that word comfortable because <laughs> I wanted to talk about that. I don't think we had that last weekend. <laughs> no, no, we did not. Not not from the fans, not from anyone. But nope. uh, aside from that motion, we saw the escort motion, your favorite. We saw some orbit. We saw some return, both orbit and just kind of Brandon Presley going across the formation and coming right back to his normal spot. Leon and Rashad Owens got involved in the motion a little bit. In 21 personnel, they were actually moving Cassidy around a lot. It's almost like he became Brennan Presley in some scenarios (laughs) with the way they were using him in motion, which is a funny comparison to make. And then there was a motion I haven't seen them do, and I could have missed it. Like with any of this stuff, I could always miss something. But 835 left in the fourth quarter. The tight end moved, shifted from one side of the formation to the other as an inline tight end. And as he was doing that, Leon Johnson was in the slot in trips and Brennan Presley was the number two and they switched positions, but it wasn't like they were in the wrong position. It looked like a true motion because they kind of, you know, had a little hop in their step and switch positions. So maybe something we see a little bit against Mm. Texas. I think there's going to be a lot of motion against Texas. So just maybe a little preview of some new stuff we might see. I think you got to have motion this week, right? No way. No way. Yeah, I completely agree. Outside of the 20, we talked about 21 personnel and 10 personnel. They were heavy 11 as they normally are 57% of the plays, but Cade, we'll talk about the specific run game and pass game as we talk through this. And I'll get back to some of my notes on that, but I think we should go ahead and get into the offensive line. Finally gave up a sack. It took forever, but they gave they gave up a sack in this game. They had the one sack on Allen Bowman. I talked about the BYU defense slanting and some issues with that. There were also some stunts, which in pass rush that we've talked about it before on the podcast, but say a defensive end and defensive tackle are rushing. They will actually loop around each other. That's one of the most common ones and kind of switch the paths that each other were taking. They'll cause some confusion for offensive line because they basically like the left guard and the center in that scenario have to switch off who they're blocking and they may have already started to engage so it's it's an it's an interesting concept. Some teams do it more than others. Oklahoma State does it at times. BYU was doing it a lot, and they were doing it delayed in this game, which sometimes that may not even be a called stunt. That may just be an idea from yeah. one of the defensive linemen, and it looks like a called stunt when we're watching it back. But I thought Joe, Preston Wilson, Cole had some issues with this throughout the game, which is weird because they they've handled stunts pretty well most of the season. I think like what you talked about earlier, the fact that BYU had so many guys up near the line of scrimmage and they were bringing second and third level guys in late might've been confusing, even though they've seen some of that stuff, the way BYU was doing it was a little bit different. And then also because BYU ran heavy three down against OU, I'm not sure exactly what all they repped in practice. I'm sure they repped everything, but I think, you know, maybe because there was so much versatility in this defense, and not knowing what they were going to do, that led to some of the confusion on these slants and these stunts in this game. Yeah, it seemed like it. And again, as I looked, it seemed like the plays they struggled the most on were when BYU brought an extra guy right up next to the line of scrimmage. That's not like an exclusive rule. There were other times, but it it seemed like that that was bothering not only the offensive line, but even Ollie Gordon a little bit as he he struggled to get going in that first half. I also thought yeah. BYU did a good job of bringing some either delayed pressures or 
in some cases, which caused issues for Alan Bowman flushing him out of the pocket, some really nicely disguised corner blitzes that I don't think we've seen a ton of, but that got Oklahoma State kind of flat-footed a couple of times. Yeah, bringing that Nick, I mean, he's not, they don't call him their nickel, but Eddie Heckard was playing a lot over Brendan Presley, so I was referring to him as kind of that nickel corner him coming after the quarterback a couple of times, then bringing kind of that overhang guy as well as the cornerback. You're right. was a little bit, I, I mean, I think BYU's game plan. Yeah. Build it, it. Basically they built off of what other teams have had success with against OSU and added in some wrinkles. They did some simulated pressure stuff where it looked like that guy up near the line of scrimmage was coming. He would drop back. And like you said, the corner would come. So it was definitely, I, I definitely thought they had a good scheme dialed up in the first half, even though Oklahoma State had some two decent drives early. They kind of shut them down later, and it, it looked like the whole offense was a little off yeah, in I, that first I totally half. Agree. Yep. In the run game, just a blanket statement, and then we'll get into each player since we did the blanket statement on the pass game. I thought there was just too much penetration, not even just from the slanting, but just Oklahoma State offensive linemen getting pushed back off the snap. And that's something we haven't seen in recent games, even exactly. against some better defensive lines, I think, than BYU's defensive line. And it makes me a little worried for yeah. the Texas game. And it just, in this game, I thought it was, it, it almost shocked me a little bit because I was like, man, this looks like how Oklahoma State's offensive line looked at times last year with yeah. all those injuries. And it, it was a little shocking to see after such good play recently. One of the things I was thinking about, and it, this is not a shot at the offensive line. They've played well this season. But, like, what is Ollie Gordon worth in terms of a yards per carry? Like, Oklahoma State ran for 4.4 in this game. Like, and it didn't seem like they blocked very well in, in that first half. Like, is he – because to me – I I thought the exact same thing. It looked a little bit like last year. And so does Ollie Gordon offset some of that? Is the offensive line is their floor is obviously much higher, but it's just it's interesting to note, as you said, uh not the greatest thing to see as you as you have Tavondre Sweat and Byron Murphy looking right at you next week. So something to keep an eye on, no question. Yeah, they were struggling with Batty and Cravens. Pretty big time in this game. I, those were two guys that stood out to me on film for BYU that were causing a little bit of havoc on the defensive line. I know we talked about some of the linebackers and cornerbacks, but I wanted to shout those two guys out again. Getting into the offensive line, Cole Birmingham. PFF has him giving up two pressures. I saw him give up a couple as well. I thought he was decent overall in pass pro. But man, after some really good games and run blocking from Cole Birmingham... I thought this was probably one of his worst mm -hmm. in this last little stretch where he's been solid. I still think he was probably average in terms yeah. of run blocking, but he's been above average. And I, I think, you know, up there with some of the better Jason Brooks games we've seen. And we talked about how you'd love to have Jason Brooks and he'd probably still be starting over Cole, but you'd love to have him for depth. But the way Cole has been playing, it's not as big of a miss, especially with some of the, inconsistency we saw from books earlier this year but i just i wasn't super impressed with his run blocking in this game yeah it wasn't great i, I also think that it was a little bit um par for the course for the interior of the offensive line last week i thought i thought most of those guys had a tough time yeah he had you know just for some examples of that stunt pickup i was talking about if you look at in the first quarter 651 left he did have a pancake near the end of the first quarter <laughs> 
I watched that play like 10 times. I almost clipped it, but I gave him the shout out for the pancake last week. I didn't want him to <laughs> think I was some weird creep that was just looking at his clips every game, which I am. But one minute left in the first quarter, he had the pancake. But I'd said he got shoved backwards a few times off the snap. One example I had was the second quarter, 12.07 left on a zone run. He struggled on some pulls. You know, for example, the second quarter, 8.41 left was one example I wrote down, but there was a couple. There was one play in the third quarter where Cole almost caused the play to bust, but Ollie had a great run. And then I want to end it on a positive note for him. Fired off the ball on the first touchdown and pushed his guy straight backwards. But I, it's just, you know, normally I like to, I call out the negatives and just give a blanket statement on the positives. I had a lot of negatives written down for him this game when I think I had like one last week. Yeah. If you go back and listen to that podcast. So those are my notes on Cole. Wasn't a great, great game for him. Yeah. Great, great breakdown, 100% the way I saw it. Cooper, I didn't think he was terrible. I thought he was solid in pass pro. I think I only had one pressure. It was a third quarter, 525 left. Bowman held onto the ball a little bit long there, but this was the sack. So the routes were deep, so I can't really – I wanted to – I counted it as a pressure because they were deeper routes, so Bowman had to kind of wait for him to develop. He probably could have got out of the pocket and tried to throw that away, but I think I think that was actually on – second down so he would have had another down to live if he threw it away but cooper kind of let his guy get right by him in the second overtime he had one outside zone play he struggled on and then he had a pancake in the first quarter it wasn't a good run play but his guy got pancaked with like 10 minutes 11 seconds left so i only had a couple negatives for him i had a couple positives i thought he was overall pretty good probably one of the better linemen but I don't know how much that's saying because it wasn't the best overall game yeah, for the offensive line. But I think I think that is what we have seen from Dalton Cooper for most of the year. If if guys are good, he's really good. But if you know the if the interior struggles, it seems like his ceiling is lowered, which makes a whole lot of sense. You play as a unit, but no, I I thought he was one of the better guys on Saturday, but it was not his best game. Yeah, uh, moving to the middle, Joe. Two pressures is what PFF has him as. I, I only saw one I think I would credit him on. It's tough with those stunts because it's kind of on both guys. So I, I just counted. I just said, you know, that was on both guys. But him on one, I think he caused. He's so tough, though. I thought the snaps were pretty good in this game. I may have missed a couple bad ones, but I, I thought he actually snapped pretty good overall. He had great push on the touchdown in the fourth quarter with 10.58 left. He had some good zone blocks when they would go to their odd front with the heavy nose in front of him. Like I said, everybody had some issues with the stunts and with the blitzes you're talking about, some of the delayed stuff, the green dogs, or as Nardo calls it, sniper. He went When he went down was after that power run, which they ran power and he got hurt. They'd never really run power, so maybe that's bad luck. Don't run power. Pull the tight end as well if you're gonna run <laughs> if you're gonna run that counter type of run. And then I thought he had great push. Um uh, yeah, like I talked about on that on that fourth quarter touchdown. I thought he was pretty good in run blocking. I thought he was just okay in pass, bro. Yeah, I think one of the most important things is that he handled the elements well. I was very concerned about that. We saw against Central Florida, he struggled in the rain with literally with the snaps. That was something that was nice to see that he he handled it well. Yeah. And moving on to Wilson, 
I thought he was okay in pass blocking, okay in run blocking. He had some good, some really good run blocks, but then a critique we've had on Wilson in prior years is he's looked, and we know he's strong. We saw him with his shirt off doing pregame warmups. We know he's a big dude, but he's gotten pushed back at times. Like he's caused penetration. But this year, he's done a really good job. I think he's looked super physical. You know, we talked about him being one of the most physical guys on the field a couple games ago. And then in this game, he's getting pushed back at times, kind of like some of the other guys were in this game. And I just, it was tough to watch because he's been so good about that this year and so aggressive off the line of scrimmage. But it was just a little inconsistent in this game. Yeah, it was. And I, I just wonder how much of that was BYU's defensive line. They've got some big guys up there that were getting a push. And I don't know. Again, I, I can't imagine that that's, you know, a guy with his shirt off at, at in the pregame huddle coming out flat. That doesn't make a whole lot yeah. of sense to me. I, I, part of me leans like he had a good he had a tough matchup in front of him that we may not have seen coming. He all of them blocked well in that first zone run. They all fired off the ball. And then I was like, oh, this is going to be, we're going to crush them. And then it kind of just got all over the place. But the weather also probably played a, a part, like you said. My notes for him are like, good pull, miss on this pull. <laughs> you know, good zone block, bad zone block. I did write my last note on him as he had a rough fourth quarter in overtime, which is weird because the team, the offense did well. In, in that little time period, but I thought he was actually one of the worst linemen during that time period. So moving on to Jake, I had him with two pressures. There was one second quarter, 724 left, and then right before halftime, 16 seconds left. I didn't think he was terrible in pass pro, but man, he actually struggled some in run blocking. They were releasing him up to the second level at times, and he there was somebody there for him to block, and he just wasn't. He had a whiff. On a in the second quarter with 12.07 left zone run, that actually led to a tackle for loss because of his whiff. So that that's just tough when you're, you know, if you don't block a play well and it gets one or two yards, that's one thing. But when your whiff leads to a negative play, yeah. that's yeah. tough. Yeah, uh, it, it, you really can't have that, especially going into next weekend. Yeah, it's like, you know, we talk about the one thing you can't do at each position and a, a whiff that leads to a negative play is yeah. big on the offensive line. So, yeah, had, had a I, couple I didn't have any other those. notes on those guys, Cade. Yeah, no, I, I think that was good. Thanks, Dustin. All right, moving on to Ollie. Man, I, I loved. First off, I love that he's a Doak Walker finalist. It's him. So there's three finalists that were named. It's him along with. North Carolina's Amarian Hampton and Missouri's Cody Schrader, who he has better stats than both of those guys, more yards, more all He should win it going touchdowns. away. Yeah, so shout out to Ollie. He's having an awesome season. Just kind of back on some of the scheme stuff. I talked about 4.7 yards per carry on first down. Oklahoma State, if you exclude the stack, the sack rushed for 4.8 yards per carry. I mean, almost five yards per carry. That's pretty good. Yeah. Seven rushes went for 10 plus yards. Ollie had a, quite a few of those. Nixon had one. Brandon Presley had one on that sweep. 49% zone in this game. That's uh, more, only 40% against UH. That's kind of around what we saw from them in the OU game. As the season has gone on, we've seen them kind of mix back in more zone because teams are catching on so much yeah. to the counter. Even though the counter was working so well during the winning streak, you almost have to go back to some zone stuff because – 
teams are just gonna, even if you run it out of a million different formations, they're just going to think you're running counter every play. Yeah. And with the way Oklahoma State's interior was struggling, it makes sense as to why they went to that. Again, it kind of goes back to did did Oklahoma State struggle or did BYU do a really good job of getting some push? I think it's it's got to be a combination of both. But yeah, um, yeah I, I just feel like the incorporation of the zone running like is a response to that has to be. Yeah, and they they ran inside zone, they ran wide zone, they mixed in split with both of those. They actually ran what looked to me because on wide zone it almost looks like they just the offensive line got a little bit too much momentum on their inside zone, like they like they're karaokeing, tripping to the side, and then getting upfield. They ran some true outside zone a couple of times in this yep. game because you could t- they're they're running to the sideline and kind of getting up field, but not with the force that the interior guys are getting up field on the wide zone play. So I thought that was interesting because we haven't seen a ton of that recently. Uh, we saw HB draw. They've been mixing that into the game plan quite a bit and it's worked almost every time they've run it. And I like it much better than the QB draw. So I'm glad that they're running that. They had the sweep with Brennan GH counter. We saw GT counter, double tight end counter and power. None of those ran for much success, but the GH counter did as we've seen it do. And then they, uh, they tried the sneak again and again, it did not work. So I guess they're going to keep trying it though. I think you just hand it off. Don't you like, (laughs) is that not a better bet? No, I I completely agree with you. I, I do get the sneak. I'm not saying like, never run the sneak i know i i get on to people about talking about never running the fade route but yes i agree with you i'd probably just hand it off so ollie with 34 carries 166 yards five touchdowns 4.9 yards per carry so basically every two times he touches it he's getting a first down by himself four receptions for 10 yards five targets i had him with one drop it wasn't super costly but he he did drop it. he probably wouldn't have got much yards anyway gundy said after the game that he made some runs on his own and we'll get into a little bit of that done his comment five touchdowns if that's not dope worthy i don't know what is so coach that's Dunn's campaigning easy. for him <laughs> it's that easy he, he also we can get back to this comment when we talk about texas but he talked about coach gunny talked about this too texas coming to him the day like the day before signing day and trying to get him to flip and he felt disrespected by that. Coach Gundy said it was like 12 hours before the <laughs> signing deadline. So I, we know Coach Gundy. There's he also one, said, no way he remembers that. Yeah, he also he, said Sarkeesian was everything. in the back room at the press conference. I think he was on one. <laughs> so, um, you know, he he talked about, he mentioned BYU stunning and slanting their defensive line. So obviously, like, we noticed it, but. Ollie noticed it on the field because he said that exactly after the game. So it was something that they were definitely talking about on the sideline and at halftime. And then he talked about not wanting to step on Brennan Presley on his touchdown. And he was terrified about just running straight through him. And that's why he jumped. I thought that was a funny explanation. Well, it made for, you know, if he was in the Heisman race, truly, it made for a Heisman moment. And that's what I left that game feeling like was it, I tweeted it. That was one of the single best individual effort plays I can remember. And the, the leap over the goal line made it iconic in my mind. Oh, so great. Again, shouting out Kalani Sataki. He gave Ollie Gordon a 
ton of credit in the post game. So instead of blaming the refs, like, you know, oh. uh, not to name names, but a Neil Brown would do. <laughs> he actually gave Ollie a lot of credit. <laughs> not to name names. Yeah. So, okay. Let me hit you with some stats on Ollie. 166 rushing yards and five touchdowns. He joins Barry Sanders as the only players in Oklahoma State history to rush for five touchdowns in a single game. Side note, though, Barry Sanders did it three times in his career. He rushed for at least 100 yards in eight of his last nine games, rushed for at least 150 yards in five games this season, including the last two, multiple touchdowns in a game for the sixth time this season. He had five rushes for 10-plus yards and 106 yards after contact. Yeah, I mean, again, I I mentioned this to you last week, but the we had a hilarious conversation about if Oklahoma State could have an 800-yard rusher, how great that would be. And, uh, well, Dustin, they have an 1,800-yard rusher. And uh, the odds of a 2,000... Doubled and more. Yeah, I mean, the odds of a 2,000-yard season for Ollie are really good. Yeah, it's it's... We thought he was going to be good, but we didn't think he was going to do this. It's been incredible. And in this game, Cade, he doesn't have the 60-yard run. His long was 23 yards. Yep. In the stadium, especially when it was on the far side, it looked like he was stopped for no gain. And then Larry would come on the PA system and say, second and six. Right. And I was like, man, how did he gain four yards there? He never That's what it looked like on every run. He doesn't ever fall sideways backwards he always falls forward and i think that's there's hidden yardage in that joseph randall did that unbelievably well yeah it's it's a very very good trait to have in your running back you know he carried it 34 times and had one negative rush and that was jake springfield's fault completely sorry jake but one <laughs> it, negative it rush was it really was, it was it was for negative one yard out of 34 rushes. I, I, it's just, that's an insane stat for a running back. Yeah. You, you don't see that. And I think what's uh, maybe most profound to me is the 20 touchdowns. Like it is so hard for a running back to put up. They, they can put up yards in today's game. It's the way that Ollie scores the ball. At an unbelievable rate that really kind of puts him ahead of some of the even recently great running backs that Oklahoma State's had, Chuba Hubbard, Kendall Hunter. It's what Ollie Gordon does a little bit differently, I think. Yeah, and I know he had the drop, but he's you know good out of the backfield catching the ball as well, and we've talked about it a million times. And again, in this game, he did well because they actually went with Max Protect in this game. Not always him, but they did a lot of six-man protections in this game because <laughs> – especially later in the game because BYU was bringing that additional pressure, but he's a great pass protector. And then one stat I didn't mention, six missed tackles forced in this game. Anything over like three is good. And then, I mean, if you're going to carry it 34 times, then yes, you need probably five, six, seven, but six is perfect. His first run of the game, that zone run was beautiful. So good. Patient. He was even patient at the second level waiting for a block to happen and then making a little cut, making the linebacker look dumb. Loved that run. Yeah. He, I, I just, his patience is again, I, I mentioned the touchdowns patience has to be right up there with his most underrated attributes. 
Yeah, it, it, his patience was great in this game as well. I pulled his rushing direction chart from PFF. He basically gained yards in every single gap, including on the perimeter. There was no like, sometimes it's kind of spiked one way if he has a big run that way. Or, you know, we talked about sometimes running on the left side with Dalton Cooper at times earlier this season. He was pretty even basically everywhere, which is a pretty cool stat. It shows you how versatile he is. Well, and one thing that we talked about in the, you know, stretch of games where he wasn't playing a lot was, is Oklahoma State, like, saving some tread on the tires? We we kind of theorized that. Like, was it, is it a performance thing? Is it, and I mean, now the the answer is unequivocally, yeah, they knew they were going to have to hand the ball to him 30 times a game to win. That's what they're doing. I mean, his durability, additionally, has just been unprecedented, I feel like. Yeah, I mean, they had to do everything a lot in this game with 88 plays. Yep. But yeah, I completely, you and I were both talking about, and I know you talked, you said you had a conversation with your brother about it, and he's shown to be durable. He got banged up multiple times in this game. It actually looked like he hurt different things when he would leave the game and he would come back in. So he's obviously not 100%, but he's playing like he's 100%. Hey, not to end... And we're not going to end the running backs because we need to talk a little bit about Jaden Nixon for sure. And then I have one note on Collins. Not to end it on a negative note, but I was talking to Adam Lund about this. I texted him this morning and said, man, Ollie actually missed several holes in this game. And I don't think it was a patience thing. I think what it looked like to me, and again, I'm I'm not in the coaching staff meetings i'm not in the film room with these guys when they're prepping but it looked like there was a heavy emphasis especially on counter runs in this game of reading the linebackers and my i think the reasoning for that is a lot of teams are starting to heavily over pursue oklahoma state's counter run because they know the point of attack on it and Oklahoma State can do some different things. We talked about Josiah Johnson taking more of a vertical path in the second half in the Houston game. You know, you can kick out different ways. You can release other linemen up to the second level, down block, aiming points, all these different things you can change. But BYU's linebackers were flowing heavily with the pull. When they see the pullers leave, they were basically running to the other side. And what Ollie was doing was even if the pullers were landing their blocks and it was going to leave him one-on-one with with a linebacker through the hole to where he doesn't have to break through contact, he actually can get up a little bit ahead of steam. Once he saw those linebackers commit, he was cutting it back up the A-gap. Yep. Yep. And a lot of times, the down blocks weren't really set up in a good angle for him to have a clean path. So like I talked about, it looked like he was getting hit at the line of scrimmage and then still gaining three or four yards. Whereas if he follows the pullers, he's probably gaining two or three before he gets touched. And if he makes that guy miss, then you're talking about 10, 12, right. You know, who knows? And Kate, I don't, I kind of wanted to pose the question to you. It's almost a good discussion. It's one that Lunt and I were having. I don't know what the right call is there. Obviously I'm not a coach, so I definitely don't know what the right call is, but do you tell him to just follow the pullers, even if teams are over pursuing or do you have him read the linebackers and the linebackers tell him on that play or on those plays that I'm calling this out on to cut it up field. And a couple of times when he cut it up field, he made the linebackers look stupid because he did bust a hole. Well, and that's the thing is like, you know, 
1400 yards through nine games really is is what i'm looking at like i i feel like you let him go and and take what he sees but remind him that hey you know your guys are pulling and they're getting penetration like just try it just follow one and see what happens because i would agree with you he made his hay early in the year on that cutback teams have started over pursuing and then he's like it's almost always happening whereas you know when we talked about Jaden Nixon never cutting back it's almost like the opposite of where it's like Ollie could just follow a block and then see what happens but it's it could be kind of back to what we talked about a few weeks back with some a little bit of like maybe trying to make the huge play instead of taking the 10 to 12 to 15 yards that are given to you and trying to make the 60 yard you know run so yeah i don't know i and again i you asked me i'd, I'd ask you I, I don't know what the right answer is but you know I, I think the stats speak a little bit for themselves in that you, you let him go and remind him that there are pulling blockers to make your life easier so if yeah, they can I mean, get there they can get there I think it's game by game. It worked out okay here. He never really busted a huge run, but he was getting those consistent four or five yard carries. Now against UT, if you cut it back into the middle, you're cutting it back into Murphy, Sweat, and Collins. And that to me doesn't sound like the best idea, but to kind of argue for like Ollie's side, not that there's sides of this argument. I just kind of wanted to bring up the discussion you got to tell, I mean, he's got to have a key to read. He can't be reading 30 things. It's kind of like a quarterback with an RPO. You got to have a conflict conflict player you identify on a lot of these passes. Now, you know, you could have open green grass on some where you're just like, hey, I'm going to throw that because it's wide open. But you got to have a conflict player. If you're, if you got two or three, that's when you're going to throw a pick. So on Ollie's side, it's like he's going to, he can't just, he can't read everything. So right. if, if the call right. was him reading the linebackers on the, in this game, then he did a pretty good job of that. Now, yeah. if it was like like kind of what you alluded to, if it was, hey, let's go play to play, depending on the defensive formation, then there could have been times where maybe he read it incorrectly and we just don't right. know. Yeah, I, I, I do think he's shown over the course of the year some, maybe, I don't know if you could even call it indecision, but just questionable decision making down the field but man is it <laughs> we could get road graded for this cuz he is having a legendary season oh yeah you know what I, I mean i think it's a I'm great honestly, topic of conversation i honestly just i thought it was interesting because you could tell that's what he was doing right in this game and if a dumb brain like me can see it <laughs> and then obviously get it confirmed by a smart brain like lunt I, I thought it was just kind of an interesting topic of discussion, but the thing is Cade and to end it on this, so we can move to Nixon and let, I mean, obviously if you have something else, but he still gained yards. Yeah. It didn't, it didn't every, matter almost that much. every single time because he's a freak. And to me, the best running back in the country. And if he doesn't win the Doak Walker, I, you know, I, I could maybe do something crazy. I might protest. <laughs> you and I, we we could go protest. I would do it. It would be it would be worse than I can't think of the last snub Oklahoma State's had. Wasn't Tylen Wallace like not a Blitnikoff finalist? That this yeah. would be worse than that. This would be far worse than that. 
I hope he gets invited to what would be a great, obviously Ollie Gordon winning the Heisman would be great, but I, I don't think that's going to happen. But if he gets invited personally, selfishly for me, if he gets invited and Jaden Daniels win, that's just a win-win for me. Well, Jaden Daniels yeah. should win the Heisman and yeah. Ollie Gordon should get the invitation to New York. He's having a, a legendary season. And I, I think is, you know, he's having the highlight plays. He's having the wow moments. And I think he's put, you know, more, uh, he's been the most publicized running back that I can remember over the last couple of years. Kenneth Walker from Michigan state rings a bell, but I mean, he's, he's a name in college football. I mean, he's, if we're talking about most valuable player to their team. Oh my gosh. Now, I mean, I guess Jaden Daniels probably would be too with how LSU's defense is playing this year, but <laughs> true, it's those two guys out of the crop that's I, out I there for so. the Heisman. Yeah, I think so. All right. Moving on to Nixon. He had one 10, 10 plus yard carry. Love on the delayed draws because that's what he can do. Three carries for 16 yards. He also had two catches for 10 yards. And on two targets, so caught both of them. The fourth down play, Cade, in the stadium, mm -hmm. I swear to you, in my head, and that split second, I thought, please try to truck stick him. Because we have seen yes, Jaden Nixon not make that guy miss, even though he's one of the fastest guys probably in college football. It, when he's one-on-one -on -one on in space – he has failed to make the guy miss more often than not. And when you're only getting a couple yards and we've seen this dude with his shirt off, even though he's a small guy, we know he is jacked. I was like, please truck stick him. And he did it. Yep. And he ran right through a guy that had a pretty good game and Heckard just trucked him. And it yep. was honestly, I felt a little bad for Heckard in that moment. Mike Gundy said that Heckard played it perfectly and he did. And, you know, to Jaden Nixon's credit, there was a play two years ago that a lot of us remember wishing a particular Oklahoma State running back would have just put a head into a a chest plate and run through somebody. And Jaden Nixon, I said Ollie Gordon had, you know, one of the best individual plays that I can remember in his touchdown run. This may have been. I mean, this was the game saver for Oklahoma State in the moment. If you don't pick this up, Oklahoma State burned a timeout to call that play, if you'll remember. So this was getting very dicey. And for Jaden Nixon to have done that was, I think it shows some of his veteran, uh, you know, mindset where a younger Jaden Nixon may not try to do that. I, I feel like he, he has learned something to say, I've got the angle. I'm going to try to run through you. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. It was awesome. It was like one of the plays of the game. I thought he did a great job catching it. I love the play. I, I believe the way that looked like it was run. I believe that's RPO. I think Bowman was throwing it no matter what, but you know, Britton Presley kind of takes that guy off. You've got the mesh action, throw that out there. I'd love to see more out of two back. I loved that play. The draw run, his 10 plus yard run. I mean, Nixon on, I know you can't just always do it because teams will catch on to it, but Nixon on the draw. So if, fast. If, if the defensive line cooperates and they get up field, like they're supposed to in that situation and leave him a running lane, that's the play, the running play for Nixon. He's so fast. The announcer called it tantalizing speed. And on that, 
play when he's already in the second level because the defensive line has worked their way up. It does feel like he could score every time they run that. Oh, yeah. If he has a little bit of a no contact head start running, yep. it's, yep. you know, it's game he's over. He's so fast. He ran kind of into the BYU defense, like <laughs> kind of back to the lateral ability. Like he's so fast, he couldn't slow himself down to adjust his angle. He just kind of ran himself right into the BYU. It's like he's defense. on ice. Yeah, he a little bit. Like stop. Yeah. But, then they, then they, the GT counter run, the only GT counter run was with him. And I actually thought it was blocked okay. And he got tackled by the backside guy. Yeah. That and was, it was like, man, go. Yeah. Go. <laughs> I, I, so. it was the next play, wasn't it? After the halfback draw. Yeah. I think it was. I think that. it was the next play. He had, I can't remember uh, who was, who had the hole on that play, but you're exactly it would have been right. Springfield and, Wilson, I, I think that were pulling. I thought it was yeah, Springfield it was right that he was trying to follow and he got caught from behind. And it looked like if he either took the hole or even bounced it, he was going to have 20 yards minimum. I honestly, I don't know what the coaches tell him, but on some of those counter plays, should just be like, if you don't see the edge guy, then just bounce it outside. Don't fall. Freaking <laughs> go. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, uh, not to be critical of him because I love the draw. I love the fourth down play. He had a great kick return, which we can talk about later. That got called back. The one note I have before we switch to wide receivers, Elijah Collins, Robert Allen said on the radio today that he's going to be available for the Texas game. Great. So back from injury. I don't know if he'll play or not, but any wrinkle you can show Texas that you haven't shown on film, you're going to need Is Ollie it. Gordon coming off the field though? <laughs> Maybe we going snap 21? at the Ollie and Elijah's playing the running back position. Oh, wow. That that would be a wrinkle to your point. Three running backs. Whoa. No, no offensive line. That just would be all the receivers standing on the line of scrimmage. Just the entire running back room and diamond formation. I mean, I, I think I, we're being sarcastic, but you're gonna have to do some of that stuff. But we'll get to that in a little bit. Okay. <laughs> Cade. Wide receivers. Gundy said he's very proud. I think this may have been. Now, I know there were some issues in the first half. I talked about Owens not getting separation. Overall, full game, including the overtimes, maybe the best wide receiver game all season by the by the group in every aspect of the game. They blocked Leon Johnson and Owens blocked well. Kate, 10 missed tackles forced. We've talked about receiver missed tackles forced. That's the most in any game this season by the group. Mm. Ten, and they all had some, not just Brandon Presley. He had the most, but everybody had some. Like I said, great blocking downfield. I thought the route running was really good against both zone and man because we talked about cover one and cover three. They made some good catches. Like I said, they got open on the deep routes. Even Bray, Owens got open, and Bowman didn't hit him. I thought in a game where Alan Bowman looked uncomfortable – and was fairly inaccurate for a 66% completion percentage. I thought the receivers were really, really good in this game. And maybe I'm being, maybe I'm over-exaggerating because I just watched a couple of plays right before the podcast of some of the good catches in this game, but I thought they were awesome. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's kind of why I made the comment. I don't know if you can pull LJ three off the field is because in my mind, he and Rashad Owens and Brennan Presley 
are having their best stretch of games this season. I mean, you had a nine catch 130 yard receiver in Leon Johnson last week. You almost had a school record broken from Brendan Presley. Like this, this unit right now is finding a groove. And I mean, they hit on deep shots last week, some fade balls. They, they hit on other stuff this week. I also feel like there's some chemistry building between Leon Johnson and Alan Bowman, Rashad Owens and Alan Bowman to where he can distribute the ball a little bit better and not feel like, you know, it's either 80 or, you know, throw it into the 80th row. Like, I I feel like there's, I don't know, there's just some chemistry there. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point by you that there's definitely some chemistry building. The thing with this receiver group, we've called it out. You know, when you lose Stribling, you lose Bray, even lose Blaine Green. You've got Owens, Leon Johnson, and obviously Brennan Presley's an elite receiver. But the other two guys, they're not Randy Moss and Larry Fitzgerald out there. Like, I'm saying these guys played great. For, like, they played a really, really good game for them. There's still deficiencies in this receiving core because Owens and Leon are actually kind of similar in that they're bigger-bodied guys that know how to use their body. They're not burners. You're basically playing with two guys that aren't, true speed deep threats on the outside when most teams have one of those guys out there or a guy that can rotate in. So I'm not saying, I'm not saying this because we've been down on the receivers at times this year. So I'm not trying to completely change my tune. I'm saying for these guys, this is the top. I think that they can play. Yeah, this was I, like I a would ceiling agree game for them. And it was, and their ceiling game is a really good wide receiver game. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think, you see Rashad Owens making big catches in big moments, but the ball getting spread around is what really gets me excited and you know makes me feel like that they have an opportunity against Texas, whereas you may struggle to run the ball the way you have all season. Like if there is chemistry building, Texas has given up some passing yards throughout yeah. the year. Like you you may have something there. Yeah, no, I completely agree, especially with some injuries they've got in the secondary yep. with their their guy Ryan Watts, who we know has good games against Oklahoma State. Yes, he does. So Rashad Owens, three receptions, six targets, 51 yards, 22 yards after the catch. I, I wanted to start doing this for all the receivers. I've done it, I think, the past couple weeks. But the average distance of throw to them, so 12.5 yards for Owens. And the reason why I wanted to call it out this week is because all three of these guys are under 15 yards, which is kind of wild for wide receivers, <laughs> all three of them to be. But two of three uncontested catches. We got to talk about the halftime. You know, Gundy said Owens wanted to talk to the team at halftime. So he let him. He actually said he didn't even know at first it was like 100% going on when he came out of the coaches meeting. But Rashad's done this before. The players said that he's done it in other games where they've been down at halftime. Coach Dunn talked about it. He doesn't raise his voice, he's just motivational. Owen said that about himself after the game. He, I mean, even if it didn't work on anybody else, it worked on himself because he came back out in the second half and looked like he literally had just, you know, chugged some pre-workout. He was <laughs> all over the place, celebrating after every play, making just big body receiver plays, getting open on the slant. He made the contested catch and then got some yards after catch carrying a dude on his back. He caught the two-point conversion. He had no receptions at halftime. And then he went off in the fourth quarter 
and looked good in overtime as well. He had the false start. Kate, I watched that play like 300 times, not to brag, but <laughs> I, I don't know what he did. He barely leaned forward. You cannot call that. He didn't yeah. make a move at all. Well, Rashad at at his, you know, age, like he's kind of a veteran guy. He was very visibly confused. Like it was I he, he was lined right. He was lined right up next to the BYU sideline. My belief is that the BYU sideline said something ref didn't see it and called it anyway. That's my thought. Yeah, because the only thing that I can see him do is he barely like like it's like I mean, they're allowed to like breathe. Right. It was like he took a big breath because he actually <laughs> the ball snapped and he was actually a little bit late getting right. off the line. Right. No, I'm sorry, Rashad, to call you out on that, but he definitely <laughs> didn't fall start. So that no, was really was strange. Bad, bad call. And to your point, I I said to your point about, you know, his leadership and the comments he made in the pregame or halftime. Uh, I saw pregame bedlam. It, uh, amongst all the festivities, the guy in the middle of the huddle before the team went into the locker room was Rashad Owens. And I found that very interesting at the time because I didn't know, you know, that he was a vocal leader like that. But I mean, he was putting a finger in guy's chest like, you know, this is our game, whatever he was saying. I'm sure it was not as PG as I just said uh, and much more inspiring. But it seems like he's that guy. It seems like he is yeah. that guy in this locker room right now. That's what Bowman said after he was like, I think it was might have been Barry Trammell made the, the a joke that, you know, maybe he should give the pregame speeches. And Alan Bowman was like, he gives the pregame speech every game. He just wow. sometimes also gives a halftime speech. Yeah. So well, good. They needed it. <laughs> yeah. So that's awesome. I mean, you know, you know, I love Rashad Owens. He's the after that practice, I thought, you know, either I know nothing about football. Or Jaden Bray and Deshaun Stribling are really, really good because this guy has got to play. And when he does get to play, he's made the most of it. Alan Bowman called out a dig route that he ran on a cover two safety. Said Rashad ended up running it more like a curl to get open and Bowman saw him. That's just an elite play. We talk about running routes against zone coverage. That's just the elite, smart, veteran, wide receiver. And a quarterback who you talked about who's getting chemistry with him who says, oh, hey, he's going to run this a little bit more like a curl. I'm going to fire it into him. He's going to catch it for a big game. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that Owens has, I mean, he's he's been an incredibly impactful guy all season. And I think that, I think he's probably one of the key players as they go try to beat Texas. Okay, talking about that, speaking of that practice I was at, Leon Johnson third, dude. This guy... I mean, Kate, if I, can, dog. I, I mean, just I, like, I don't know if anyone that is related to him or anything listens to this podcast, probably not, but I'm not trying to be rude when I say this, when I watched him at that practice and Adam Lunt can vouch for it as well. He was there with me. I didn't think this guy was going to play ever. Not, not that I didn't think he was good enough to play. I can say that now. I know in the preseason pods, I was saying he needed another year of development. He dropped balls off the jugs machine he was not able to get any separation in the one-on-ones and in team, they didn't even like look his way. And he is from, I know it was just one practice, but from what I saw at that practice to what I've seen in these last couple of games, especially this last game, it's a completely different person in the same body. It's, to- it's literally a completely different person. And I was wrong about everything I said about him, including his, 
in a couple games ago when I said he doesn't do a good job of coming back to the football, he saved an interception. Yes, he did. In this game, coming <laughs> back to the football. Nine receptions, 11 targets, 132 yards. Kate, I'll throw it back to you. I just want to do go on record saying I'm dumb and Leon Johnson is good at football. Well, you know, we, none of us were there. You saw what you saw, but I know what I have seen over the last couple of weeks. And I, I have to wonder if the injuries to the wide receiver room and allowing Leon Johnson these reps in practice has helped him the way it appears. I mean, he is... It's like he's you can see the progression from week to week, which is so you don't see that. But it's it's literally almost like you, you saw it a couple of weeks ago. You saw it even more against Houston. And now it's like, oh, he's like the one of the best receivers on the team is what it looks like. Like I made the comment that he's good enough to where, you know, he's going to have to you got to figure out Jaden Bray's situation, not Leon Johnson's, because right now he's too good to pull off the field. and. I'll stand by that, but I mean, he is making big boy catches. He's it's almost like the ball finds him and that's the mark of a good receiver. And I mean, he's such a big target. He's crazy athletic. Um, I hope and pray that they get the, the uh, waiver that they're applying for because he deserves another year. And I, I think he would be right up there contending for a starting role in this offense next year. Yeah, and I mean, the thing with Leon that we talked about too is not that he's not physical, but if you could kind of get up on him and man and maybe have a safety shaded that way to where you can't run the go, he had some trouble creating separation, not because he's not physical, but just he wasn't a very polished route mm -hmm. runner, and it also caused issues for him in zone. And he's he's making decisions on routes and zone, kind of like the one I talked about with Rashad Owens curling stuff, curling in dig routes, changing kind of the angle of some of those glance or slant routes, the snag route, finding the open space when he's running the sit route behind the mesh, finding the open space week to week. Like you said, he's getting better at this stuff. I mean, Adam Lutt put a video up of him on kind of a, a deeper slant glance route, creating separations, hand fighting and catching the football in it's creating like four yards of separation just from a simple hand movement that's not interference. He's getting held on, you know, the the fade ball is a touchdown if they don't get the pen. Like they took the penalty because he was going to catch it over that guy. So it's just, I know he had the holding on the screen. That was like the one blemish in this game because he drew penalties. He looked good against man. He looked good against zone. When you hear him talking after the game too, he sounds like he's so invested, like, when he talks about specific plays, it's so passionate. Like you can tell he's so invested in the game and he's literally become one of my favorite players after probably being one of the guys I was most critical about outside of offensive line. Obviously we're the most critical about them and those guys, I'm sure they know, but <laughs> we, uh, he's been awesome. Yeah, he, he really has been. I mean, there's been a lot of good stories that have come out of this season. Alan Bowman, Ollie Gordon's, you know, run at the Heisman there for a little while, the offensive line. But I think Leon Johnson seizing his moment has been not just for this season, one of my favorite stories. I mean, if he goes and gets a Big 12 title, it will it will be like storybook stuff for his individual story. You know what I mean? Like to burn your red shirt and get a shot at a Big 12 title and not know 
what this looks like down the road. Like you could be done playing football next week. Um, he may have though, Dustin, the, I, there's not a lot of tape, but the tape that's there, I mean, somebody may bite on a practice squad invitation. So you just don't know what's going to happen. And for that reason, I think it's just been, you know, he deserves as much credit as he's gotten, if not more, uh, just for his own situation and, and the way he's taken control of it. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. It's been awesome. Let's wrap up the receivers with Presley. We've kind of talked about Bray a little bit, and we'll talk about him a little bit more when we talk about Alan Bowman to talk about the interception play. Nobody else got any targets out of the receivers. Nine receptions, 14 targets for Presley, 90 yards, 65 yards after the catch, four missed tackles forced. He only had a seven-yard average distance of throw. A lot of screens, a lot of quick stuff to him. He had five snaps out wide. We saw him with that outside to inside motion a couple of times. Ton of motion with him. Coach Dunn said he played his ass off. I thought, you know, if we're not talking, we can talk about special teams later, but specifically talking about him as a wide receiver, the run on the jet sweep touch pass, Batty had him in the backfield and he just oh, yeah. outran him, then made another guy miss in space and got like six or seven yards off of it. He's so dynamic after the catch. I love the RPO arrow screen that they added in this game to him. Hadn't really seen him run that route very much. He gets out there, gets open. I know Leon had the hold on one of them, but outside of that, I thought that play worked well. He got a, he drew a penalty on an awesome route in the red zone. And you know, okay, they went to the jerk route a couple of times. Bowman had an inaccurate throw on it once, but man, if you're a DB and once Presley has the jerk route and the speed out on film, along with the glance and slant. How do you how do you defend him? Because yeah. he runs all of them. He's so jerky, twitchy, and he runs all of them so well. All three of those could look the exact same off the snap, and then he breaks one way and he's wide open. But you can literally <laughs> throw it to him almost every play. Yeah, he is. Uh, I think one thing that gets hidden with him is how he, I mean, you said it, on the jet sweep, he made something out of nothing. He does that like, at least twice a game. He did it against Houston. Yeah. He did it against UCF in a blowout. Like he is so difficult to bring down. He runs routes extremely well, but when he gets the ball in his hands, it's like, you know, good night, like pack a lunch because he's taking you on a ride. It may be for five yards, but I mean that jet sweep, I mean that play was dead and he squeezed six yards out of it. That's the Brennan Presley experience in a way. It was awesome. He's so good. Like I said, you could literally, I know 14 targets, I, you could give him 20 for all I care. I know I know Leon and Rashad are awesome, but every time he touches the ball, yeah, you're gaining yards. It's almost like the Ollie Gordon. Like it's not so much the falling forward, but he's just always gaining yards. So it's it's awesome to watch. Cade, if you're good on receivers, let's come back to Cassidy and Johnson and move yeah. on to Bowman. Just because I know we're going a little long right now. And I definitely want to talk about the defense. So pass game scheme, just real quick before we get to Bowman. I have OSU with some type of play action or post-snap action on 30% of their snaps. PFF had this at 29%, so pretty close. That's down from 47% last week. They started going to some more drop-back stuff kind of around the same time they weren't using motion. And I think that's skewing this number a little bit. Also, it doesn't mean they didn't run a lot of RPOs. In the first half, 
BYU did a good job of covering up the double glance when both receivers are kind of running that slant glance route. And so Bowman had the give read a lot on the RPOs. Almost every run in this game, or especially early, had an, a pass tag. Yep. And he was handing it off a lot. So they were still running RPOs. This is just specifically on pass plays. And they found a lot of success on RPOs in the second half. Yes, they did. They ran that counter arrow screen. They ran the split zone arrow with BP, which I didn't love that play call in that third and two or whatever that was. Counter hitch, counter jerk, which we talked about. They had the swing out of two back. They had the zone glance. They ran, they went to zone glance a bunch because they started mixing in zone. In the play action game, we saw that scissors where the receivers fake like the block and then they cross deep downfield. They've ran that play like once a game. And I think it's hurt them more than helped them a majority of the time. You had the Bray drop. You had Bowman throwing the pick to Owens on it. So it, it's a good play. It just hasn't worked very much. They did the fade go. They did the jet sweep touch pass. Y cross deep out. And then out of their drop back game, we saw a screen snag, which they've run a lot. They've gone to curl flat. They're out and go shallow, also shallow three times in a row and a little bit of mesh, but <laughs> I think teams have started catching on to it. So they haven't run it a ton. One thing I wanted to talk about on their play action. I don't know. I'm not hundred percent sure if this was by design. They did it twice. It looked like it was because teams do do this. It was like, it wasn't an RPO. It was a hard play action. So they actually showed GH counter pull. And a lot of teams do this with pulling linemen, but it, it was just a little interesting to see both guys pull. And OU, like Riley teams, did this with GT counter. So they're pulling, but the other linemen aren't down blocking. They're actually setting to pass. And then the pullers end up pass blocking to the side mm -hmm. they're pulling to. So it looks like RPO, but it's, it's a pass play. And Bowman actually does more of a deep drop on it. It didn't that he had to throw it away. And then I think the other one was an incomplete pass, but I haven't seen them do that a lot this year. Yeah. So the true hard play action, it was actually pretty interesting. Yeah. It would be nice to have seen more of that as teams were keying on the counters, like hit them with, with, you know, that feels like a, you know, you said Lincoln Riley, but I was thinking like, that's feels like stuff you see in the NFL quite a yeah. bit where the, the, the pass blocking schemes are really intricate, just like that. I would have loved to see a little bit more of that as we, as we know, though, Mike Gundy's, you know, propensity to keep things simple is, is pretty high. <laughs> yeah. So I wanted to call out a few of those. They obviously switched some routes up on their RPOs and those started working in the second half a little bit more, but Alan Bowman, 31 of 47, 66%, 321 yards, zero touchdowns, two interceptions. Cade, I had him with four turnover worthy plays. And I can go through them real quick before I throw it back over to you. Scramble at the end of the first quarter looked like he would have just thrown it away. Should have just thrown it away. It was first down. Brendan Presley actually almost caught it off the tip, but that should have been picked. Then the interception, obviously we'll get into that a little bit more, but I just wanted to cover all four of these real quick. The, Inter the second interception to Brennan Presley was also a turnover worthy play. And then I had the, it looked like Brennan Presley was held. I didn't count this one, but it looked like Brennan Presley was held in the fourth quarter. That was almost another turnover worthy play. And sorry, I missed the very first one. First quarter, 646 left. He's flushed out of the pocket. 
Colby in Joam miscommunication on a late stunt from BYU throws it. Leon Johnson actually does a good job of playing defense because it should have been picked. Probably could have been pass interference on that play as well when you watch the replay. But man, I know he threw two picks and two of those are my four turnover worthy plays. But even if you throw it 60 times, four turnover worthy plays is too many. Yep. And he, it's getting to a point, Kate, in a couple in a couple of recent games where I almost wish we had, I know we were making jokes about his first read being out of bounds, but I almost wish he would throw it out of bounds a little bit more. Yeah. It seems like that's happened less than it once did with Alan Bowman. Like, I don't know if as the season has worn on, he's pressed a little bit more, but the decision-making that once was very good. I mean, we've now seen two pick sixes in a row. We've seen several interceptions and several interceptions that should have been caught that did not get caught. That would have made games look worse. So to me, like, I felt like this was Alan Bowman's sloppiest game of the year. I felt like from some procedural stuff we talked about over text, you know, opening to the wrong side several times, some of the decisions he'd made throwing the ball down the field. I, I was left wanting that was in the first half. The second half, he was very good, very good. Great command of the offense. The the interception, he should have just ate that ball. Like he, he should have either, I would have been fine running out of bounds. The like, first one or the, the second? Oh, no, the second one. Yeah. Not out of the diamond formation. In the second half, when Oklahoma State, it's the fourth quarter, and you're driving and you make that throw, should have just ate that ball. Presley was pretty well covered up. You, you live to fight another down. So back to your point, just throw it away. And so I, I felt like overall, good enough to get the win won't be good enough next weekend. Is I know he gets a little jumpy in the pocket at times, but since like the first time he stepped on the field, this was the first game where I thought he looked a little uncomfortable. And obviously, you know, we could say it was tight, but then, you know, he's kind of being loose with the football, so it almost contradicts it. But he might have been feeling a little bit of the pressure of trying to get them into this Big 12 championship game. Yeah, that's kind of what I was getting at. He's been calm and composed. Now, the dancing in the pocket, I don't think is him not being composed. I think that's more We've of like seen a enough of that technique thing that he just still does. And also he got his lung collapse and his collarbone broken and all that stuff. But this was like a mental uncomfortableness. And I think it was because I think he looked okay on that first drive. Then you get another field goal. Then you come out and you don't look great on the drive right after that. I believe that one was a, yeah, that was a three and out. Then you have the turnover on downs. Then he throws the pick and the, the remaining three drives of the first half, he just looked out of sorts. Like he, he could, there were some terrible passes in those three drives. He just didn't look comfortable. And you're right. In the second half, he comes out and makes some really good throws. The receivers did help him out some, but he was a lot more accurate. I thought in the second half, he, you know, on the sack, he may have held it a little too long, but he did just take the sack. He ended up not throwing it, you know, into coverage. It was just a little weird seeing him kind of, you know, just uncomfortable and a little, like I said, out of sorts early in this game because he hasn't looked like that during this winning streak really at all. Even in the UCF game, that was more because of the weather. Yeah, and again, it's like you look at the stat line, 
I don't think it tells the whole story. Like most of those passing yards came in the second half. Say most. I don't know the number. It felt like a lot of them. Uh, the interceptions, one's in the first half. You know, a lot of the inefficiencies were in the first half. The offense, you know, over the last couple of weeks has sputtered. And I don't think it's all Alan Bowman, but it's it's a trend that you don't like as you're heading into a matchup against Texas who started extremely fast last weekend. So I, I don't put too much stock into it. I really do think that the moment was huge. BYU was trying a lot. And a lot is put on Alan Bowman's shoulders when you're playing from behind. So in a way, he responded pretty well. Yeah, and just to your point on the stat, they had 76 passing yards in the first half and yeah, 235 so they, in the second. Yeah. So it's like I just watching it, it's like it felt like all of it was in the second half. So yeah, I love the Zach Robinson jersey, even though it was a little tight oh. on him. I loved that. And just to hit some of the stats we normally hit. PFF has 19 dropbacks where he was blitzed or 40%. He was only under pressure 17% of the time, according to PFF. But I think that stat is wrong in this game. I actually felt like he was under pressure a little bit more than that when I was watching. And if you look, you know, just him getting flushed out of the pocket several times, his time to throw was pretty in line, 252 with what it's been. But like you said, it was just, you know, it was just a little weird early in that game. And you're talking about that fourth down. You talked about him opening the wrong way. If you go back and look at every counter or counter RPO before that play, he opened up away from where the pullers are going. So away from the play side on that play, he opened up the same way the pullers were going. He opened up to the play side and Ollie went the other way. I'm 99.9% sure that Alan Bowman was wrong there. Yeah, it's, it seemed like it live. I think you're correct. And and just that, just that, you already called it out, but I just kind of wanted to go back to it. Just that simple thing just showed that he was a little bit off and he may have been I pressing think he did it trying twice. to get him into this Did he game. not do it twice? I think he did. He had a, and it just he, it got away with it. He had a play fake where him and Ollie went the wrong way, right. but I don't know who was wrong there because yeah, that was a straight yeah. up just pass. So... But, it, I mean, yes, it probably was on him if he had that other one. You know, his throws to the opposite hash, though, to Owens, to LJ3, and to BP a couple awesome. of times on those outs or those kind of corner routes over there, flag routes, sail routes, whatever whatever they were running, those are tough throws. Yep. And he made multiple throws like that. And the throw to Owens in the fourth quarter, and Owens got – when he carried the guy on his back, that was a big-time throw. Owens had just slipped, too, and he – he put it in such a good spot that he could still get back up and catch it. And then, Cade, the interception, I just wanted to talk about it for just a second before we end the offense. Alan Bowman talked about it after the game. You know, he you know he had some thoughts on it. My thoughts there are, this is a cover three, cover one team. That cornerback is eight yards off the receiver pre-snap. Bray should have ran the hitch. I don't care what the corner like does it. after there's two options on that. Now, Bowman said just as much. It's hitch or go. And on this one, it looked like they had the double. They were running some double moves. Owens ran a double move and got wide open on the play where Bowman overthrew him. So it looks like it was hitch or double move. Gray ran the wrong route. That's yeah. hitch. Unless him and Bowman talked about it beforehand, and obviously they didn't because Bowman threw the hitch. But if you watch it, as Bowman's starting his windup, Eckert is starting to break on the ball the uh, 
Either way, it's a great play it. by Heckard. Yeah. The play by Heckard was amazing. What, what ideal situation is Bray runs the hitch and Bowman just throws it over his head, throws it straight into the ground in front of him or eats it, like you just yep. said. So it's on both of them. I know people like to blame one person, but that was on both of them. And Bray, you can even tell he runs the double move after he sees Heckard break. It's like, dude, you literally hung him out the dry there. Because yeah. if you ran the hitch, you could at least. So everybody was wrong there. I just wanted to end it with that. That's, and then for. That's one of the interesting things, though, Dustin, is we have seen on some of these choice routes over the years. I mean, I, I think back 2021, Spencer Sanders, Rashad Owens getting crossed up in Austin. The It's, it's a difficult thing and it requires chemistry. And Jaden Bray has not played a whole lot. So that's a that's a piece of that that is, you know, worth discussing because, you know, this is this is something we've seen. And, you know, one of my thoughts is, well, don't give the choice. I get that you're trying to exploit coverage and you need an experienced receiver in Jaden Bray to run the right route, though. You need Alan Bowman to also not make that throw. But that's that's tough when you haven't played a whole lot. And. Again, I just you, you see our guys get crossed up on that more often than I feel like is normal, but I don't have anything to go off of to prove that. No, I, I mean I, it's a good point by you. I mean, you got to if if Bray's having trouble with it, you either got to not play him, or you got to make it easier for him. To be fair to Jaden Bray, player. To be fair to Jaden Bray. Alan Bowman threw it to a squatting corner last weekend. So yes, there's a little bit of, of, uh, you know, I don't know. It, we we've seen enough there. Yeah, no, no, hundred no, percent. All right. On the Titans fullbacks real quick, Josiah Johnson. We already talked about him quite a bit. I did want to mention that he had some good split zone blocks as well. Some nice kickouts on the yep. GH counter, couple whiffs here and there, but I thought he blocked pretty well. Cassidy's blocking was a really good. He had one bad pass pro snap in the middle of the third quarter, but outside of that, he was awesome. And then Kate on the first overtime touchdown, Adam Lunt clipped it. He sideways torpedo bodies. Yeah. And he took out <laughs> two guys. <laughs> he, he, I mean, he didn't re- like, that's obviously not what he was doing, but it was such a good, like low cut block that he took out two guys and it literally led to the touchdown. It went a little viral in Oklahoma uh, state Twitter circles. It was Mike Gundy or not Mike Gundy. I know it was tweeted about several times that specific play, that specific block. I mean, you could, you could beat Texas with that a couple of times with the talent they have on the defensive line. Just throw Braden Cassidy at their legs. Yeah. And uh, Oh, also on Johnson, he got banged up. He came back, but that's the first time I've seen him leave the field and he's been hit a lot. So yeah, it must have been a a little bit of a stinger that hurt pretty badly because he's a tough dude. And then shout out to Quentin Stewart. Didn't play many snaps, but he had a great block to seal the edge on the go-ahead touchdown in the fourth yep. quarter. Yep. Yep. Love it, Dustin. That's it, Cade. We went long on the offense. Had a feeling we would, though, with double overtime, lots of touchdown runs, and iconic 88 plays. performance from Ollie Gordon. 88 plays. Had a feeling we'd go long. Rather than get right into the defense, let's send it to a word from one of our sponsors and we'll come right. We want to say a quick thank you to sponsor the Feels Like 45 podcast, Classic Overland. 
Classic Overland specializes in restoring original Land Rover Defenders designed with your unique style and specifications. They go to great lengths to find quality vintage Defenders before they begin the restoration process, and their team of experts will guide you through the various exterior and interior options to create the perfect build. Our friends Luke Reed and Robert Dennis of Classic Overland are both Oklahoma State graduates and will work with you through the process to ensure you have a great experience. And in addition, if you purchase a Classic Overland Defender and mention this podcast, the Feels Like 45 podcast, their team will donate a portion of the proceeds to the Pokes with a Purpose NIL Collective. To learn more, you can visit their website, classicoverland.com, and you can contact Luke and Robert at robert at classicoverland.com. Thank you, and go Pokes! All right, Dustin, welcome back. Thank you uh, again to our fantastic sponsors at Classic Overland who've supported us this season. But Dustin, I mean, the Oklahoma State defense, when you look at it, I don't want to steal your thunder and I won't. I thought that this was top to bottom, that unit's best game of the season. Yeah, Cade. I mean, when you look at everything, that's wise. 327 yards not very many Oklahoma state didn't have any sacks, which is kind of the one negative we'll get into a little bit when we talk about the defensive ends, but three point, the reason why I brought it up is 3.5 yards of carry. And we don't have to add back any sack yards into that only 130 yards rushing Jake Retzloff, 14 of 30. That's 47%, 161 yards. And if you look at his passing his 161 yards, literally 50 on that one deep ball, which was a beautiful throw. He had 25 on the tunnel screen. And then he had 19 to Keanu Hill. And that's basically like all his yards on those three passes. I think the rest was like 60 something yards on the other 11 passes. Yep. It just, I, I mean, it was pretty much outside of some explosives it was a pretty good game all around. And, you know, seeing some people talk about, you know, throw the first half film away. There was a pick six and a <laughs> fake punt that gained like, what was it? 30, 36 yards. They had held them to fourth down. And then a fake punt, which is on the special teams, gains 36 yards. They still hold them to a field goal. So truly, there were only two real drives that scored in that first half. So they really only gave up 14 points in that first half. And then I know they gave up one touchdown in overtime, but you've got great field position there. They only gave up three points in the second half. Outside of not being able to get pressure, and I didn't think the defensive ends were very good after having what I thought was one of their better games all season last game. That's pretty much the only real negative on this defense. And to the point where I think adjustments-wise outside of adjusting to the jet sweep and maybe playing a little bit less man, I don't think there were any real big, you know, yeah. Brian Nardo's second half adjustments, but this time I truly don't think there were very many. I didn't, I didn't think so either. I felt like they played well in the first half. The defense was a little bit of the scapegoat, but if you go back and look at it, as you just laid out, there were a lot of things that it wasn't the defense and it was, it was, you know, seven points on the offense, three to the special teams and then you look up and it's like okay well 
that was not the defense. And then as you get into the second half and overtime, overtime, it's tough. I, I feel like you can throw a little bit of what you see there, at least not not in the trash, but definitely with a big asterisk. A team's not having to drive down the field. Uh, they're not tired. They they can go with their best stuff. So I I look at the three quarters from the second quarter to the fourth quarter and look at that was really, really good. I mean, a second half shutout, basically. Yeah, and yeah, great point on overtime. I mean, if you if you hold someone to zero when they're starting in field goal range, that's you know almost yeah, a double that's not possible. gonna happen. Three is basically zero in that situation. But you know, Gundy mentioned Kato, a point that I wanted to bring up to you. We had issues stopping the run in the first half and their new option offense had to make adjustments in the middle of the second quarter and then made a few more at halftime. That's kind of what I'm talking about. And we talked about in the preview, they only had one game of film on Retzloff playing that type of offense. And you saw it catch him a couple of times. They were running that midline option, that midline zone read where they leave the three tech or the, I guess in Oklahoma state's case, at times it was like the one tech unblocked. You saw Colin clay standing there in no man's land as they zone read off of them and take it up the middle Kansas State does a little bit of that, but outside of that, not many other teams have run that against them mm-hmm. very much. They haven't seen there's not a ton of film on BYU doing it. There's not a ton of film on Retzloff in general running the football. The jet sweep, what they were doing is going heavy unbalanced or motioning to heavy unbalanced. So, like on one of those jet sweeps they ran down in the red zone, they had trips one way and a tight end to that side, and then ran jet sweep back the other way in Oklahoma State not only only had their cornerback over there, but they had all three safeties on the, like, so say the line running down the middle of the football field, all three safeties were on, on the other side of that line away from the jet sweep run. So there was no defenders over there. So they had to make adjustments to some of that stuff, but you could tell, I don't want to say this offense is gimmicky, but you could tell it wasn't truly beating Oklahoma state because they completely, shut it down in the second half. And if that last drive doesn't happen, I mean, do you, have you seen You're, the third quarter stats? No, I'd love to hear in them. The, in the third quarter, BYU ran 13 plays and gained 23 yards. Yeah. yeah. In the entire quarter. Yeah. 23 yards. And I'll be honest, watching it, Dustin, it felt like they didn't gain a yard. Like it felt like Oklahoma State's defense was just totally tightening the screws on them. And I love what you said. Like it's not gimmicky, but they couldn't get much going at you. It was all side to side trick stuff. You know, they hit on one deep throw in the first half. And I am I told my brother, I was actually really surprised Oklahoma State's defense gave up a drive to get into field goal range the way that they had been playing that entire second half. I was surprised by that. It coming into that drive, the last drive of the regulation, they had 81 yards in the second half total. They gained 44 on that drive, right? 81 yards. They, they had the ball one, two, three, four, five, six times before that and gained 81 total yards. Yeah, that that's why it was jarring to me. I mean, Oklahoma State's defense held them to six three and outs on the game. 
it's awesome. Oklahoma State only had three, and one, you know, honestly, one of them they were being a little conservative, I think, but they went punt, 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 punt in that game until that field goal drive. You know, I, it was just keep going. It's just that was their second half. They punted a lot. Yeah. And their punter can bomb it. Yeah, he really can. In the conditions, too. But yeah, so Oklahoma State, they did a couple of interesting things early. I put some of them out on Twitter. They kind of went to like a bear front, which we saw Derek Mason do last year at times. So it's their normal three down odd front, but they have both linebackers, Oliver and Benson, lined up basically as defensive ends on each side of the tackles. So it's kind of like a true five-man front. And I think the reason that they were doing that is because BYU has been such a zone-heavy team. It's kind of something that we've seen NFL defenses do, kind of prevents the offensive line from getting double teams and allows your linebacker, your middle linebacker, and then in Oklahoma State's case, their safeties, especially their rover safety, Kendall Daniels, to have a little bit more free reign because those offensive linemen can't release up to the second level. But kid, I think one of the main adjustments they made schematically outside of covering the jet sweep and playing a little bit more zone is, and apparently Brian Nardo had a long conversation with Kendall Daniels at halftime. Like he talked to him more than he talked to the rest of the team. Kendall Daniels was keying run in the second half and he was fitting run so well and having that extra guy fitting run when it's raining, which we didn't even mention with Alan Bowman. You know, we're critiquing him. We didn't even mention that it was raining the entire game. But with Retzloff, he can't, he's not a very good thrower anyway. That one pass was beautiful. Outside of that, he missed so many throws. Yep. And it was a little bit because of the rain. It's a little bit because he's the backup quarterback and he's not as good as Slovis. But once you could start keying on the run in the second half, they weren't going to beat. They didn't have, they don't have the caliber of receiver. And we said this in the preview to beat Corey Black, Cam Smith, DJ McKinney, and Kale Smith deep. And it, it showed in the second yeah. half because they weren't able to do anything. The receivers weren't great. Quarterback was not great. I love the thought that they were keying run as well. I mean, BYU was up 18. Like, yes, you would key run in that situation. And I don't think it's any you know coincidence that Kendall Daniels had I thought by far his best game in this scheme under Brian Nardo. Yeah. And Brian Nardo said, even mentioned like what Gundy said that BYU brought out multiple things they haven't showed on film. And I think he was specifically talking about those unbalanced jet sweeps. They're going to, every team's going to have something schemed up that they're going to get you on. Even in a 45 to three loss, Oklahoma state had some plays that gained yards and they had some plays that we hadn't seen before. That's always going to happen. It's how you adjust to them. I did think it was interesting that Etienne started at right tackle after he hadn't started. I don't think like you the think, previous like three games. You think that was like give him a little juice or something? That's the way I thought of that. I really, I think it was, and he honestly didn't play that bad. No, he, he did not play bad. I didn't think. But Oklahoma State showed some tight front. They were very heavy odd front in the first half. And then they mixed in like more than they had done in previous games in true odd front, not with the shaded nose, like a true zero tech. And then the second half, they mixed in some of the stuff we've seen from them in recent games and some of the 
even front with Colin Oliver on the line of scrimmage. They even showed some two, four, five with Deshaun Brown as the standup. I think next season you're going to see that two, four, five a little bit more because oh, Deshaun Brown will probably be playing a little bit more. And I think you'll see him standing up as more of like a linebacker Leo looking and, you know, not a ton of missed tackles in this game. I think PFF only has them at 11 for the entire game that, you know, they've been up around 20 in some of the games earlier this year, only one pass 15 plus yards and one run over 10 plus yards in the second <laughs> half, no explosives. And that's been the big thing for Oklahoma state giving up the explosives. They didn't give them up this game. Yeah. A credit to the way that they very slightly adjusted. And I just thought the execution was fantastic in the second half. I, the energy as well, like they came out with a different edge. I think they thought that they could win that game like defensively. And really, I think you could argue just as much as the offense they did. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I will say that Aiden Robbins had a decent game. He, a couple of times though, it was a straight up missed tackle by Oklahoma oh, yeah. State that led to his big plus dude. Run. He's a good running back. He is a good running back. And apparently this was the first game he's been like a hundred percent healthy yep. in a long time. So I did want to mention, Cade, before we get into PFF snap counts in each position group, the first three jet sweeps of the game, they ran, I had them running six, went for seven yards, 11 yards, 14 yards, and one of those scored a touchdown. That's 10.7 yards per carry. The next three went for two yards, three yards, one yard. Wow. <laughs> two yards per carry. One of the adjustments in the fourth quarter, I don't know if you noticed this, the deep safety was Corey Black. And then they, so... He was the deep safety shaded a little bit to the field. And then they had Dylan Smith and Cam Smith as the cornerbacks or the nickel in the corner to the field. And on the boundary side, they had Rucker and Daniels up near the line of scrimmage. And so BYU ran into the boundary, which they had success on earlier in the game. And Oklahoma State just had too many guys over there. And even if they would have done something back to the field, you still have three guys over right. there with only two wide receivers out there. So it was a good adjustment they made. I, I like that. Yeah, really interesting tweak. Not the first time either that we've seen Corey Black all the way back deep. It's pretty cool that they've uh, decided to do that. Yeah. Uh, so Cam Smith and Corey played a majority of the cornerback snaps. We saw DJ McKinney some in this game, but they played quite a bit. Dylan Smith ended up playing more snaps than Cam Epps in this game. So we've seen that flip-flop like multiple games in a row now. And then tons of snaps for Justin Kirkland, who I know we'll get to, but he was awesome. He he was, was it his best game? Best game yet, I would think. Yeah, definitely up there. I mean, he was a really, really good. Yeah, um, very active. Just to get the negatives out of the way, Kate, let's talk about the defensive ends. Retsoff was only under pressure on 19% of his snaps. The defensive ends only accounted for one PFF hurry and one QB hit. BYU did do a lot of max protect, six-man protections. But, man, you have got to figure out a way to get some pressure. And then Oklahoma State just overall wasn't good on the blitz. Yeah, Even when they brought six, they weren't getting there. And you have got to get pressure. On Quinn Ewers when we're playing against Texas. I'm not trying to take us down that rabbit hole. No, it's exactly where I went. Outside of Goodlow, who had half a tackle for loss, one PFF hurry, he helped create that option fumble early in the game. That I think that half tackle for loss was in the first quarter, like second and two. 
outside of him and a couple of good plays from the other guys here and there, the batted ball from Walter Scheid, the nice tackle by Latou on the early first quarter zone read, the QB hit by Deshaun Brown, and then a nice tackle by Ross in the late third quarter. Those are the only notes yeah. positive I have on the defensive ends. Yeah, it. I will take us down the road of the Big 12 title game where you know, you've know you got probably the best offensive line Oklahoma State's faced up to this point. I have big concerns after having seen enough on the defensive line about what they're going to be able to do to heat Quinn Ewers up because if you remember how Oklahoma State won that game last year, Quinn couldn't set his feet in the second half. And so... They're going to have to figure out a way, uh, and I don't know what that looks like, but to your point, Dustin, they were not very good getting pressure on the quarterback. And the thing is, they were not very good getting pressure on the quarterback, but they were pretty good against the run. Yeah. So it evens out to like an average game. But I think there's one game left outside of the bowl game. So when we're talking in these scenarios and comparing things, we have to talk about how they're going to play in this next game and how they need to play. And if they play an average game against UT, Oklahoma state might get their doors blown off. And I I think you're going to need them to play not only above average, but much better than they've played for a majority of the season, which has been floating around average. Yeah. I, I, amen. I have nothing to add. You nailed it. Yeah. I honestly don't want to stick on them because I, I don't have a ton of positive, honestly. And I, we we gave them their flowers last game, so I really don't want to well, go too negative on them. <laughs> well, that leads you directly into a very positive unit, though, in the linebacking group. They were awesome. Well, real quick before we get to the linebackers, I did want to just uh, on Kirkland real quick. The pass breakup. Oh, I mean, a Kirkland pass. He's rec- they recorded that as a pass breakup. It's fantastic. That's just. Incredible! How many nose tackles get a true pass breakup? the The hustle that Kirkland was showing in this game, like to even be out there, he was almost there for the fumble too mm-hmm. before Benson dove on it. He, he had great penetration. He was the only guy on the defensive line that was consistently eating up double teams. Yeah, and that's why I think Martin was able to have kind of a good game as that main guy in the middle linebacker spot because no one could release up to him from the interior. Yeah, I mean, Kirkland was taking up three guys at times. He was very noticeable, and he has been at times this year. But that's why, like, the pass breakup was there. I thought he was going to have a pick six on on one of those plays. <laughs> like, I would have lost my mind. Yeah, I he was right there, and I think the ball just got there really quickly. But like, he was he was very active, and it felt like BYU had no answer for him, and teams that have played him in the past have been able to with a double team have been able to counter him so this was the first time I felt like that was not the case and that's that's very general there have been times but consistently throughout this game I thought he was outstanding yeah on the good low half tackle for loss he pushed his guy into the running back that helped get that tackle for loss I did want to mention Colin Clay because we kind of bashed him earlier on that midline zone read he had a really good tackle with two minutes left in the second quarter. It was on a screen play, and he made the tackle on the perimeter. It was the nose tackles were hustling in this one. They always are. They bring good energy. You can always say that. 
They do. Okay, now onto the linebackers. My bad, Katie. Yeah, sorry to, to sorry to Justin segue Kirkland you when you said we're getting to Justin Kirkland. That's on me. I'll be better. So I thought the linebackers were good. I mean, I thought they were the reason. Agreed. Along with Kendall Daniels and obviously the coverage, but in the run game, I thought the linebackers and Kendall Daniels and a, with a little bit of Trey Rucker were the reason, and that's basically everybody on defense. So I just named the whole defense, but – I thought they were awesome. Nick Martin, eight tackles, 1.5 tackles for loss, two QB hurries. PFF has him with three hurries. He moved a fourth in in terms of tackles for the most in a single season by a Cowboy. And I, he's been, he's 10 behind Malcolm Rodriguez's 2021 season now. He also mentioned that he's never played in overtime before in his life, in his football life. I thought that was pretty interesting. When he came out in the second half, I thought he had a better second half than first half, but he was good in the first half too. But when he came out and made the tackle on the first play of the second half, I think it was for like a two-yard gain, you could just tell he was amped up. And when you see that from Nick Martin, you know he's about to have a screaming <laughs> hair-on-fire tackle yeah. a few plays later, and he did. He had great pressure on the Kirkland pass breakup. Final drive of the game, he had a really good pressure. I know that drive ended in a field goal, but he was all over the place. As usual, he didn't have to make as many tackles because Daniels, Rucker, yep. and Benson, and Oliver as well had quite a few in this game, but he was all over the place. I felt like the middle of the defense, including Daniels in this and Rucker in some cases, this was the first time that I felt like they were truly in sync from a run stop perspective going up to that third level of the defense. I mean, not not getting to Kendall Daniels yet, all three linebackers were outstanding. Xavier Benson continues to Im- not just improve, everywhere. but excel. Like he is incredibly active. Uh, Mike Gundy talked about it in his uh, media availability this week that he just never quits. He loves football and it is showing right now. I mean, we gave him a little bit of flack early on in the year, but I mean, he is just. I mean, Nick Martin is, you know, best player on the defense. Xavier Benson might be the most important player on the defense. I think he's Mike Gundy's favorite player. He brings him up all the time. In his he's got some Ori Lemon level of Mike Gundy love. The thing about Benson is the only way teams can run on the perimeter to the field side. I mean, they can run on the perimeter of the boundary. They've done that quite a bit. We saw OU have success with it. BYU did it a couple times in this game. But the only way teams can run on the perimeter is to do a jet sweep where you have like two lead blockers or a swing pass where you have like two or three lead blockers because one guy cannot block him. Ask Austin Stogner. One guy cannot block Xavier Benson. Let's ask Austin Stogner. Let's bring up the tape. You're correct on that. (laughs) The six tackles for him, two QB hurries, beautiful defense on the speed option fumble. Got the, uh, I mean, he's just, bashing into people no regard for his body he was all over the place he had a great tackle on the first play of overtime big tackle in the fourth quarter to bring up third and five he had a good pressure but nick martin also was in on the pressure so benson probably people probably noticed nick more than benson on that but he was also there and then oliver i thought he was good on the zone reads when he was the read guy he's fast enough to where he can show that he's crashing on the mesh and still tackle the quarterback or show that he's sitting and still make a backside tackle on the running back. And that's why I think BYU is doing more of that midline zone read 
Because if you're going to read Colin Oliver, you're going to read wrong more often than not. Yeah, I love that. I also, you know, kind of going back a little bit, a point you made about running on the perimeter. Colin Oliver not getting washed up in this game. BYU couldn't get anything going on the ground. But, I mean, he's so critical to that. And um, wonder what this looks like against Texas, who does not do a ton of that. I, I I look to see how he handles a downhill running team this weekend. Yeah. I mean, we've seen him struggle with yep. when linemen are coming at him. So if the defensive line, we talked about it, something I was talking about with Adam on as well. He's gotten a lot of shout outs on the spot. We've we got too many on that. Yeah. But um, we'll be, I'll be sitting with him at the big 12 championship <laughs> game. So I'll, uh, I'm sure he'll give me some, if, I mean, he's not going to listen to this, but if he did, I'm sure he'd give me a yeah, hard time about just it. Just call me if he demands like a royalty check or <laughs> just let me know. But I was, you know, talking to him about if the linebackers have to pay attention too much because yep. they think the defensive ends and the nose tackles aren't going to eat up these double teams then that's how Texas is going to, that's exactly going to crush right. you. The linebackers need to be able to be free-flowing, especially with all the motion, all the movement that they do. The linebackers need to focus on running to the football and making a tackle. So the defensive line is going to have to help them out in that UT game. Yeah, that's a fantastic point. We'll get we'll get to that. Uh, one thing on Oliver I wanted to call out for him, move to the defensive backs. Right after the fake punt, he covered the H-back on a wheel route and ran with him step for step 30 yards down the field. And that's who the ball was supposed to go to. Mm. And Oliver was locked on him. And that has seen a lot I mean, of that this year. NFL teams are going to see that. And that's going to be the type of tape that it's like, man, maybe this guy, even though he's kind of a tweener in size, maybe he can play linebacker at the mm. next level, man. That's awesome. Great catch. I, I didn't see that on tape. Yeah, it was awesome. And then he had, he had an awesome play at the end of the third quarter where he just, like perfect form tackle on a guy, but uh, DBs, the corners. I mean, almost a blanket statement. This is Locked a game down. we've it, we've talked about this. If you don't have really good wide yep. receivers, which Texas does, if you don't have really good wide receivers, I, I don't know what you're not gonna. You can't gain yards on these guys. Yep. Corey Black, they threw at him twice. He almost picked one. And then the other one, he was literally all over the guy. It was right before halftime on the second and 10. And then the other time they throw it at him, he almost picks it. There's literally no benefit of throwing at Corey Black unless you have an elite receiver out there because we've seen even a cornerback, even with Tim Duffy teaching them to face guard the receivers, he still is going to almost pick the ball off. If you give him the chance, he might hurt you. And I think that's why teams avoid him because of plays like that. Yeah, I think you're spot on. The other thing I'll say, like you mentioned briefly that Texas has elite receivers. Corey Black's played against those guys, not A.D. Mitchell, but he's played against Xavier Worthy. And so this is something that I feel like as the season has gone on in our previews, we have nailed this. I, I would say an almost 100 percent success rate what the corners are going to be able to do and how a team is going to be able to attack them. The wide receiver talent in the Big 12 has not been that great. And BYU may have bottom three amount of wide receiver talent. And you, when you started talking, you said blanket statement. For me, it was just like, 
there's not a ton to talk about because they didn't get tested. And that's what we kind of expected to see was people just don't throw at them and BYU didn't do it. I think the only negative thing on the corners was they were getting, they were having trouble setting the edge in the first half. But obviously we talked about some adjustments there and then just getting off blocks better on the perimeter. But they were some of the reason that those jet sweeps were working because they were getting bottled up. I think it was Kale Smith one time that didn't set the edge. Cam Smith actually played the run pretty well and he had some good coverage snaps. Man, if he makes that pick, at the end of the third quarter, then we're probably not going to overtime. Oh, that's, no way. That's the biggest momentum changer. That was right after Bowman's pick. Too. Yeah, it was. I honestly feel like it would have gone the way of the Houston game if that if that catch is made. And then he he gave up one catch on the field goal range or the field goal drive late in the game, but he was right there. I mean, it, it was a really good catch. I honestly thought they were going to review it in the stadium, but um, McKinney... I don't. I don't even think it was bad coverage on the deep ball. That was no good coverage. Great throw. A beautiful throw, and Rucker was right there too. It's not like that was bad coverage. That's an explosive that you can live with. Like you don't want a lot of those, but that's not just Trey Rucker or Dylan Smith right. getting run right by. You know. So, um, and then Kale Smith, he had that missed tackle late in the first quarter, but I don't really have any notes on him. He didn't play a ton of snaps. I think he. I think he only played like in snaps in this game or something, 18. So not as many as he'd been playing. On the safeties, real quick on Dylan Smith and Cam Epps, I had Cam Epps had a pass completed on him on the field goal tying drive, but BYU didn't really come after Mm -hmm. the field safety, which was surprising to me because almost every other team has. So I don't have a ton of notes on Epps. Dylan Smith had the holding call in overtime, which... I thought it was, I mean, he was right there. You know, if he just doesn't grab the guys there in coverage, I still don't think the guy's making the catch. He had nice coverage on the flat though in the fourth quarter. And then he had one pass completed on him on the field goal tying drive, but I didn't think he was terrible. He was a little weird in the run game at times, but I thought the field safeties were okay. I, I mean, did you have any notes on those guys before we talk about the two, the two main guys? No, I'm I'm ready to get to them. Dude. Let's just start with Daniels and we'll end with Rucker because his game was hilarious. Like he had some of the worst missed tackles I've ever seen and then some of the best tackles I've ever seen. But Kendall Daniels, seven tackles. All he talks about too when you talk to him after the game is how great the relationships are on this team, which he just seems like a great guy. But the way he played in the second half, King on the, the, those are the best run fits he's had all season and he's had some games where he's fit the run really well this was the best and Cade I think this was one of the only games this season where he looked like he wanted to hit somebody and we know he's had some injury issues which have led to some of the timidness there but he looked like he wanted to kill people on those run plays do you think it is because BYU had the lead you know they're going to try to run the ball. Is it a, in, in my opinion, it is a confidence in like what you're seeing. And I have said this and you have said this that like it does, it seems like timid based on he doesn't know what's coming. Sometimes he doesn't know where to be. In the second half of this game, it was like, whoa, Kendall Daniels is here. And it was, it was hilarious. It was almost like at the exact same time I thought it. I had people texting me about it. Group chat was talking about it. It was like everybody at the same time, Kendall Daniels 
arrived. And my question to you is, do you think it had anything to do with the fact that BYU's not throwing the ball? They're going to try to squeeze out this clock, and that unlocks Kendall Daniels. Oh, yeah. I mean, I thought BYU could have maybe tried to use him as the conflict player and some RPOs yeah, same. in the second half, and they probably would have worked because he was fully keying on run. So I think it's, yes, 100% agree and yes answer to that question. I even wrote down because I, I write my notes like in order, obviously, because I'm watching the game in order, but I wrote bad run fits. And that was one of my notes from the first half. And then in the second half, I said, great run fits. So Delete it was a comment one. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's, I think it is a mindset thing. Like he's not thinking pass at all in the second half. I will say the one negative, if he's, if an other teams know it, cause they throw this pass. Every team has thrown this pass a couple times a game on Oklahoma state when they're in man and they know Kindle is on the tight end. They run that arrow route mm-hmm. because Kindle has like 10 yards. It's not his fault. But I'm sure Texas is going to do that with Tavion Sanders and gain like like eight yards when times. they do it because Kendall's yeah. not going to be able to get there. But I, I hate that play. They, I mean, they try to do it at the end of the game, but on yep. Rucker, and he strips it and gets a fumble. But man, I mean, I have so many. I have like 15 plays. No, not 15. It's like eight where Kendall made a great play. So I'm not going to go through all of them. But that was the second half, and even some in the second quarter. But the second half is the best half yep. he's played all year. He actually was even had some good coverage snaps. So, I mean, I guess he wasn't just keying the run. He had some good coverage snaps in the second half. Yeah, I, I agree. I, th- I thought it was his best game in this scheme yet. Trey Rucker, six tackles, forced fumble. He had the, yeah, he's just all over the place. Gundy talked about his missed tackles early, and he said he went over and kind of talked to him about it, and he does a good job accepting coaching. He used to not. So that's kind of cool that he has kind of grown from that. Nardo said his heart rate doesn't go up or down one way or the other. And honestly, that's how I feel watching Trey Rucker. Like he's always playing intense, but he could get burned for a 99 yard touchdown and come back and like just knock a guy's head off the next play. He's hilarious to watch out there. His motor He's always going 100 miles an hour, which is why it seems like his heart rate doesn't move because it's always at 100%. Like he's always running around. His nose for the football in this game, though, was, I mean, obviously with a forced fumble and a fumble recovery, but he was all over the all over the field and always right by the ball. And uh, I heard uh, Pistols Firing say they should memorialize the cleat that he was wearing. As the uh, as the tight end's knee came down on it, but that was like, I can't think of a play like it where it was like, man, that was that may be why Oklahoma State was the luckiest team in football as the knee comes right down on the foot. But I just Trey Rucker, man, um, it seems like he's a leader on this defense. Seems like he's more confident. He was in great coverage on that deep throw. This was a great game from Trey Rucker. I've been waiting to say that. He also made the tackle in the play before the fumble. It was a two oh, yard he did, game. didn't he, he? Yeah. It was like at the line of scrimmage. Yeah, he, he did. Blew in there like a missile, like a Nick Martin missile and made the tackle. So he had some bad run fits early as well, but he, he played run and pass well in the second half. And even in, uh, in the second quarter, he just had some bad run fits early in the game and some brutal missed tackles 
one in the first quarter on a third and three that literally led to the first down or he, I mean, I think they would have maybe stopped him short or right at the line, but he also, uh, Nardo said he knows Trey knows a guy that he coached at Gannon. And right when I heard that, I was like, Trey Rucker seems like the guy that knows everybody <laughs> like some, like this guy know, like Trey he knows was, somebody on every team. Last night he was on a podcast with Eric Daly, Javon small and Ollie Gordon. And then Trey Rucker's there. I think, I think people love <laughs> Trey Rucker. Mike Gundy called him a knucklehead for obvious reasons, but seems like he also is a guy that Mike Gundy likes having around. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. He's like a guy that maybe doesn't, fit all the things that a normal Gundy guy like you'd think a guy that Gundy loves does but Gundy seems to love him and that doesn't always like happen with those guys like that so like the guys that are more like you know have had some rule breaking issues and things of that nature or like he said didn't accept coaching well normally Gundy kind of writes those guys off but it's like he like has a soft spot for Trey. That's what I. It's got to be an attitude and effort thing. I mean that goes so far with Mike Gundy. It's got to be that. Yeah, but hey, that wraps it up. I do want to make note on special teams. <laughs> if we continue to get special teams penalties, I'm not going to do the podcast anymore. I I don't know if you said that last week. Maybe I dreamed it, but uh, it's got to stop. Special teams like, again. And then Brennan Presley was horrible. What is he doing? I said this weeks ago. I know it's that, rainy. It was rainy. I want to note that. I know it's rainy. But but I said weeks ago that it seems like he doesn't know when to fair catch, when to field, when to let it roll. It seems like 50% of the time it's the wrong thing. And it's maybe the thing about his game that he's the worst at. And I bet he would agree with that. Because like yeah. there, was a, there was a punt that he had 10 yards of space to make any move and he fair caught it. It's like, man, run. You're the fastest player on the field. Positive wise, you know, Hale made some field goals. Parker Robertson had great coverage on a West Paul punt that went like a mile. Uh, Hudson Cock had some good punts. Jake Schultz had a good tackle on punt return. Ward kicked every kickoff. I think that he was asked to kick in the end zone in the end zone. But man, Kate, I want to end it with... If you've got an extra point that's going to put you up by four points with less than a minute to go, instead of trying to make that kick, you should try to kick that kick as high as you possibly can in the air and hope it flies forward enough to go through. Alex Hale kicked that like, I, I don't even, it was like a line drive. Yeah. The blocking wasn't even bad. If he was aimed at your section, it would have killed you. Like that's, yeah. that's the angle it took. And I would die for that to go through the uprights. I would have taken it off the face if it would have gone through the uprights. I would kill you. I would kill you for that <laughs> to have gone through the uprights. I mean, that made me so mad. Like you have to kick that into the sky. Yeah. You I would agree with that. that. Block. Also offensive line, get a push. Like it's, you got one point to get. Yes. Hale needs to kick that higher, but it, I, if you go back and look at it, guys are falling backwards. So yeah, yeah, it definitely wasn't the best blocking. But I agree kick with it you higher. There. I'm with you. Yeah, that's probably his low kicks have been driving me nuts lately. Well, he did it kicks. against Houston. He had that kind of like forty yarder that was low and curling and kind of strange. 
I mean, I, I've, I've loved him, but I, I mean, you know how kickers are for me. If you start, start making me mad, you're it's never going to come back to the good side. A short leash for you. It truly is. Well, Cade, that was way long. Sorry. We probably rambled a bit. We had a lot of good, uh, like theoretical conversations during that. So we really well, did. they probably weren't good, but I, I enjoyed them. I enjoyed them as well. You can always turn it off and, but we, people don't do it. So that's why we keep doing it. Well, Dustin, to quote Eastbound and Down, it's a bleeping showdown. And I can't wait for it to set the table. Like I said this a little bit earlier. Texas and Oklahoma State in the Big 12 title game. You have Texas, who is having a phenomenal year. The Texas is back conversation is as quiet as it's ever been. They are on both sides of the football, sound excellent in some areas and have really in my opinion no no clear deficiencies but they have a lot riding on this game they also as the college football playoff rankings were announced as we've been live they are on the outside looking in in the college football playoff uh scenarios they're ranked seventh they've got ohio state above them they've got washington and oregon so theoretically as it sits today they are on the outside looking in. Oklahoma State, on the other hand, they are coming in with no pressure. They could just win a Big 12 championship. They've already, in my opinion, excelled, like exceeded expectations this season. So you have a team with the most amount of pressure that you could think of. Oklahoma State's been there. TCU's been there. Both of those teams lost that game. And Oklahoma State, who thrives in this type of setting. And so Dustin, as we talk about what Texas does, does any of that play into your mind as you think about this game? It does. And I wanted to mention, I talked about myself being there. You'll also be there. So we're, we're going to have a good time. Yeah. I wouldn't miss this game. See you there. Yeah. So that'll be a lot of fun. We'll be, I think, Kate, I think you said you're going to be at Texas live before the game, right? I will absolutely be there. Yes. I'll be there as well. I know our buddy Adam Lunt will be there. You can catch me outside Friday night, Saturday morning. And if we win Saturday night. So if you're there, we'll be say there. Hello. So if you want to chat, say hello. We'd love that. We love talking to anybody. Is anybody Just who's punched come up to, to the us. ribs for something I don't remember saying? You can give us flowers if you want to. Oh, but this is the first game, Kate, and not to t- bring down the mood since the K-State game where I just think it's going to be, and we won the K-State game. So, yep. you know, good things can happen. This is the first time, even against OU, because that game's bedlam, so it's so much different. But this is the first time I've thought, man, this one's going to be tough. Yeah. And this Texas team is really good. And I know I've seen the tweets, you know, Texas is struggled against some of these teams that Oklahoma State, you know, played well against, Kansas State to overtime, yeah. things like that. And I get it, but that happens to every team. You know, we're talking about that lucky rating. It's wins and losses. And Texas has won a lot of games. And they've got, you know, I'm saying it's wins and losses, but they also have the stats to back it up. And they've got probably one of the best, if not the best minds offensive minds in college football going up against a guy you and I both love. We think he's going to have a great career, but a first time FBS coordinator. That's, you know, I think the same age as me 
as the defensive coordinator for Oklahoma State. So it's a tough matchup yeah. all around. Yeah. I I would agree a hundred percent with that. You look at the scenario and then you look at the X's and O's and what each team has. I mean, Dustin, as you get into Texas's offense, we've already talked about their offensive line. We've talked about their receivers. We've talked about their quarterback, but they, they don't really turn the ball over a lot. They are run first. They motion a lot, but they have the ability to hit you over the top. And that is an extremely tough recipe for any defense, but it's a tough matchup specifically for Oklahoma state in the way that they have played this season and their propensity to at times get creased in the run game and give up long plays over the top. Yeah. I mean, you lay that out perfectly. They're 31st in passing yards, 24th in rushing offense, 26th in yards per play. 20th in points per drive, 69th in sacks allowed, 24th in turnover margin, as you mentioned with the turnovers, and 17th in the F+. plus. It's just, it's not amazing, but solid, basically, in every category. Talked about Sark, RPO heavy with pro passing elements. You know, he's been at BYU, USC, Washington, Bama. Spent time with the Atlanta Falcons in the NFL. Started out as a West Coast guy. Mixed in some heavy run offenses at USC and then big time into the RPO game when he was at Bama. They primarily operate out of 11 personnel and 12, but a lot of times it looks like true spread out because they'll split Jatavian Sanders, their tight end out. They'll even go empty with CJ Baxter, their running back split out wide. The run games gap and zone, but they've leaned a little bit more zone this year, in my opinion. Brooks, Jonathan Brooks, when he was healthy, seemed to be more of their zone guy. But as they've gone more CJ Baxter, he's seemed to be a little bit more gap. They're kind of trending back that way. If you want to know more about Steve Sarkeesian's offense, there's like a 40-minute coaching clinic on YouTube where he talks about it and gives examples and game cutups. It's actually really awesome. So if you want to go check that out, it's on there. But they're kind of an inside zone RPO team that mixes in the gap scheme. They'll, they'll take that tight end and they'll block him. You know, he'll kick out the edge. He'll insert, he'll split, split zone block. It's kind of like a tight zone, more as an inside zone, which has the running back aiming a little bit more like in the play side A gap than in the typical kind of like B gap that you would see from inside zone. So they like to keep it in the inside. They'll mix in wide zone, some duo with all the double teams. They'll do some bash stuff. I saw some GH and GT counter in the Iowa State game, so they'll mix that in. Their drop back and play action game is a, kind of revolves around some of the West Coast NFL stuff. They'll do mesh. They'll do all hitch, sit. They'll do some dig post, deep routes, putting the safeties into conflict. They'll throw out you know guys like Jonte Cook for two plays just to have him out there with Worthy, and they won't even throw it to him, but just so the defense knows you got two speedsters on the field, and they'll try to get Worthy open deep. They like to throw it to the running back out of the backfield. They do that mesh sit with the running back wheel. They run that play a lot and throw it to basically every progression on that route. ton of different RPO looks. They'll mix in the screen game. They'll even do some max protection and kind of keep some guys in and give yours some time. Cade, my keys on them, you know, we talked about a lot of their players, talked about their offensive line, which features guys like Kelvin Banks and Christian Jones, two really good tackles. We talked about Winnington and Worthy. I think we've said all the names. 
personally, my keys, you can't let yours get into a rhythm early. You talked about this when we were in the BYU review. Oklahoma State was able to get some pressure on him, get him to throw some picks. He's a smart quarterback. He hasn't thrown a ton of picks this year. He's done a good job this season of scrambling. He's not a designed runner at all. Like if you go to PFF, all his runs are scramble yards, but he's done a good job of it this year. But if you can get him out of rhythm, Iowa State kind of did it to him a little bit early. He will force some things and they don't always turn into interceptions, but they turn into three and outs and they turn into stalled drives. I mean, Wyoming was doing some kind of simulated pressures and they were even getting some sacks on him. So simulated pressures, creepers just confuse him. We talked about Alan Bowman being uncomfortable. You've got to make him uncomfortable. A big key is going to be stopping the script. Sarkeesian scripts are awesome, which is like his first 12 to 15 plays. And they're long he scores too. On them always. Yeah. Limit the explosives. And if you could just get a few red zone stops, they're obviously going to score when they get into the red zone. That's like what Sark does best. But if you could stop them a few times, you could give yourself a chance to win. And I think UT is going to try to attack the cornerbacks early. But like we mentioned, they may be able to hold up against this receiving core, even though they're freaks. They haven't been the best overall receivers, which you kind of alluded to in the review. Yeah. So if if Corey Black, Cam Smith, DJ McKinney can hold up early, and that part of the game plan doesn't work, and they have to focus on coming after the safeties, and you get a little bit of pressure on yours, I think you can get them out of a rhythm enough to make it a game. But if you can't get any pressure, and if yours gets going early, I, I honestly think there's a there's a scenario where this turns into a blowout. Yeah, i I think it is more likely that Oklahoma State gets blown out than it is that they win the game. That's I, I honestly wrote that question down to ask you before the preview. Okay. So thanks for spoiling. That, that is the way I see it. That that is a more likely scenario. Not to not to you know be a Debbie Downer, but I mean. Their offense sets up well against Oklahoma State's defense, and it's a lot of ifs for Oklahoma State's defense. Now, there are opportunities where they just don't hit on downfield plays and you get them behind the chains, and if that's what they want to do, okay. The way I remember Texas having success against Oklahoma State last year was not through the air. It was on the ground early, and then Quinn Ears made a couple of throws, but by and large, once they got out of their script, once they got, once Oklahoma State was able to get pressure on Quinn Ewers and slow the run game down, their offense grinded to a halt. That was a not great defense from Oklahoma State either. It was a better defensive line, but not a great defense. And so I think there are paths to keep this game really close in the fourth quarter, but the paths to win it are, are slim. Uh, if you're just talking about, you know, Texas offense versus Oklahoma State's defense. Got to be able to react well to the motion. And then Epps and Dylan Smith, they have got to play well. I know we already talked about the defensive line. We've already talked about the linebackers. We talked about the cornerbacks. Daniels and Rucker, I think, will be okay. But Epps and Smith, those are the young guys. We've seen highs. We've seen lows. Sark's going to come after them, especially yeah. if the cornerbacks hold up. 
that's going to be his, it, it might be his first thing he comes after yeah. in the passing game, but it's going to be his second if it's not his first. It's a really tough matchup. You and I texted about it all day. It's a, it's a tough matchup. All right, Caden, on defense. So they're actually, I know this isn't a great stat, but they're 94th in passing yards allowed. So they have allowed a lot of yards. They've just been an efficient defense and they're great everywhere else. They're fourth in rushing defense. 23rd in tackles for loss, 30th in sacks, 19th in yards per play, 13th in points per drive, 6th in F+. They've been awesome on third down, and they've been really good in the red zone. So yeah. just, you know, those are basically every defensive stat they're good If at. you were hoping it got better from the Texas offense preview, it re- I mean, it really doesn't. Like Oklahoma State doesn't want to play behind the chains. They don't want to play from behind anyway. This is additionally a tough matchup. If you can't get success going early on the ground and you're forced into obvious passing downs, that's that's where I think that this does turn into a blowout. Yeah. And, you know, Pete Kwiatkowski, we've talked about his defense on here. It's They kind of base out of that, like, nickel 2-4-5 with the two stand-ups, the jack and the buck in their – two down defensive linemen, you know, Dave Aranda calls it their peso defense. We've talked about it with Baylor at times too, but what they want to do, Cade, is they want to go too high and they want to stop too high safeties and they want to stop you up front by keeping too high safeties deep. If they can stop Ollie Gordon with two high safeties, then Oklahoma State can't win this game. Yep, I agree. You have to force them. You have to force them to bring another guy into the box. And then you also have to attack them down the sidelines if Ryan Watts doesn't play, who I know he's questionable, their cornerback, because their other corners have just been okay. You have to attack them down the sidelines as well. I just I don't know how much you're going to get in the middle of this defense with guys like Jalen Ford and then with the pass rush that you're going to see from I mean, we've already talked about, we've already mentioned all these guys' names in the review, but Murphy, Collins, Sweat, Sorrell, Burke, when they activate Anthony Hill as a pass rusher, Vernon Broughton, Trill Carter, these are just not guys you want touching Alan Bowman because they may break him in half. Yeah, that's a scary thought. But, um, you know, one of the paths, Dustin, that I think that Oklahoma State has to finding some success offensively you get the tight end involved in the pass game in some sort of delayed, you know, looks like you're running and you're not. I, I feel like the offensive game plan looks somewhat slow. Like, I feel like it it has to look methodical if Texas does keep those two high safeties up there, which they're going to start the game that way. So it feels like it's a heavy dose of Ollie Gordon early. See what you can get. And if not, I hope you don't turn into the, you know, uh, run, 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 fade. But that I could see a scenario where that's what the offense looks like. And, you know, teams have been mixing up their defensive fronts to confuse Oklahoma State. Texas does that like as their base. So they'll do, I mean, not as their base, but like does that as their normal game plan. They'll do the two, four, five. They'll do three down. They'll look like a traditional four down or three down with a stand up edge at times. They'll even like, you know, widen the guys out and bring the buck in between, like we've seen Oklahoma State do with Oliver. They're not super, and, you know, it's mainly quarters coverage on the back end, but they'll play man as well. They're not super aggressive blitzy, 
until it gets to third down. And if you have third and long, then they're going to get really creative, bring simulated pressures, bring guys from every angle, and it's going to be tough. So kind of like what you were saying, you got to establish the run and make them get out of that too high, too high shell. And then you can set up some play action passes off of their coverages because they don't really mix up coverage a ton from what I've seen. So it's kind of predictable zone stuff that you can pass against if you can get them moving around. If you can't, I mean, the RPO game should work, but Texas is going to know you're going to try to do that. So they're probably going to try to take it away. So you're going to need a motion. I want to see motions we've never seen. I want to see formations we've never seen. You can keep the plays the same. I keep it simple, but the eye candy pre-snap, it's got to look like the OU game. You know how many new motions we saw in that game, different formations. You got to do that to Texas. You got to keep them guessing. You got to get them moving around because if they stay in that too high shell and stop you with those beasts up front, it's, I mean, I don't know how you're going to score. Yeah, that's a... Unfortunately, the way I see it as well, I think most people looking at this game agree. And so, you know, if there's a scenario where Texas doesn't take care of the ball, Oklahoma State does, they capitalize on opportunities. Like there are there are ways a overmatched Oklahoma State team wins this game. Um, I I just personally don't expect it heading into this game uh i that's kind of where i am dustin i hate to be negative about it you know as we're moving into the prediction but i i just think i think texas is the better team and you guys know i want to pick oklahoma state in every game but i just don't know if i'm gonna be able to do it here i kate are you ready to pick yeah i think we should one note too, we don't have to go into it on this, but I just wanted to say special. I wrote special teams with an exclamation point in bold, all caps, because Texas is really good Very on special good. teams. So, all right, I've got the line at minus 14 and a half. UT's favored, the over underline at 55 and a half. I'm going to, I actually think Oklahoma State comes out, motions throw some new formations out there, confuses Texas, gets them out. I actually think the offense operates good enough. I just think they're not able to stop UT enough, but I actually, I have it as a close game, not super close, a touchdown game. I have UT 34, Oklahoma State 27, but I think it might be close the whole time. I actually think Oklahoma State's going to come out like you meant, I think you said it what like at the beginning of the podcast, not a care in the world, just happy they got there, but think they're confident in themselves, good locker room culture. Mike Gundy has owned Texas. All those things trend positively for Oklahoma State, even though they may have they may not have the talent that Texas does. And I think they can keep it close for a majority of the game. I just think Texas's talent comes out on top at the end. Yeah, they they rise as additionally to the level of their competition, Oklahoma state's best moments this season have come against the best teams, Kansas state, Oklahoma. I mean, that they are good enough to keep this close. They're good enough to win Dustin. I I don't think like, I do think that the matchup is bad, but they, they are, this isn't, you know, I mean, 
This isn't Central Arkansas walking into this game. It's Oklahoma State who's won nine games this year and has beat some good teams. So I I honestly feel like the energy will be very high. I feel like the attitude will be very good. I think there is a scenario where Texas is shelled up, a little bit nervous. This is Quinn Ewer's biggest game of his career. He's never played the college football playoff on the line. He's never played in a game like this. You can tell me about the Red River rivalry. There is a lot on the line here. I do think Oklahoma State can keep it close, but I'm going to pick. I'm going to pick Oklahoma State to cover, but I think it gets away from them late with some sort of, you know, big play. That goes wrong. So I've got Texas winning 37 to 24. Um, but I do feel like the game is closer, you know, than that score would indicate. Yeah. And I agree with you. I think Oklahoma State can win this game. I don't want to be all doom and gloom. And I want you listeners to know how much it hurts me to pick Texas in this game. But that's, I just, I just think that they're the better team. I do too. I mean, I, I honestly think we'd be doing a bit of a disservice to just pick Oklahoma State out of. I mean, I guess we did that against Oklahoma, but I honestly but felt like different. Oklahoma State would win that game. That's different. Like this, this is a tough matchup. And uh, again, there are paths to win this game. I just think that they are less likely than the most likely outcome. So, I mean, Dustin, it's been an amazing season. The wildest one that you and I could have decided to do a podcast on uh, because, man, I think back to that conversation we had about is Oklahoma State going to win another game? And, yeah, if they could just win one more big one too, this would be a storybook type of year. Man, it would be so awesome. We'll, we'll be there. Like I said, if you guys see us at Texas Live, I'll probably be there a couple hours before the game, which will be pretty early in the morning. <laughs> And if you want to, if you want to say, Hey, want to have a beer, please feel free to do so. Anybody that came up and said, which I'm acting like it was a bunch of people. There weren't that many people that said, Hey, to me in Arizona state, I'm not that recognizable, but the ones that did, I thought we had a great time. It'll be a good time. Dustin, look forward to seeing you look forward to seeing everybody down there. We'll sign off with this. Yeah. We'll do one quick ad read and then we'll sign off because Cade, this is the time of year for wild oak lighting. If you don't know what wild oak, wild oak lighting is, that means you probably haven't listened to this podcast because they've been a sponsor throughout the season, an awesome sponsor. They're your authorized jellyfish lighting dealer for the greater Oklahoma City area, Stillwater, and several other Oklahoma markets. Jellyfish lighting is a permanent but discreet color-changing LED lighting system for the exterior of your home. With 16 million different colors and patterns, Jellyfish lighting can be used for Christmas, holiday, and accent lighting. And of course, Oklahoma State game day lighting. And of course, Oklahoma State Big 12 Championship game day lighting. You can learn more about jellyfish lighting by checking out the website, wildoak-lighting.com, or you can follow them on Facebook or on Instagram at wildoak underscore lighting. You guys know I have the jellyfish lights, got them on for Christmas, they're awesome. I've actually had a couple people in my neighborhood ask me about them recently since we've had them on every night with the Christmas lights. I'll have them on orange on Saturday. I'll set them from my app, which is one of the best features of these lights. I could set them. They're connected to the Wi-Fi. I won't even be home. I'll be at the game, but they'll be bright orange the entire day. Hopefully the OU fans in my neighborhood can wipe the tears from their eyes and check out my orange jellyfish lights. 
if you want these, hit up Wild Oak Lighting soon because this is the perfect time of year. They've got a lot of quotes coming through. They're really busy. But if you tell them, the guys at, the guys at Feels Like 45 podcast sent you, they might move you to the front of the line and it will be worth it. I promise yep. you that. Love it, Dustin. If you're not already, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and threads at Feels Like 45 Pod. You can follow Dustin at Dustragu. You can follow me at Cade Webb. We will see you guys back here next week, and we will see you in Arlington. Go Pokes!